Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. So, here we are. Combine season is upon us. There are several reasons this is, of course, super, super amazing, exciting, all that good stuff. Partially because so many of the things that we want to know, need to know, uh, drive ourselves crazy about when it comes to the prospects of studying is based on guesswork, sometimes educated guesswork. You know, we've seen them play, we have heard rumors about what they did at somebody's camp, uh, what they did at somebody's uh, spring conditioning, and, you know, some of them have actual legitimate track backgrounds, so we heard about you know, what they ran in a 100 or 200, or what they triple jumped, or high jumped, or long jumped, or whatever event they were in, and We've decided some of them are terrific athletes, and some, most of them are. They're Division One or Division Two or Division Three, very occasionally Division Three. In this case, there's at least one NAIA athlete, but we, we get a good sense of what we think an athlete is physically. And that's quantifiable. We can spend a lot of time, and we do spend a great deal of time, discussing what we know an athlete to be in terms of what they do on a football field how they produce, how they see things, how they react to things, what they can and cannot do. And we guess, speculate, and extrapolate about what they can be, at least partially based on what they are physically. And I see I've been joined by the future Mardi Gras king, Mr. Gentleman James Coburn. How are you doing, Jim? Good. Excellent. So this is the time of year when people begin to, spec not begin, they already began quite some time ago, but where speculation runs rampant about who will do what and who will rise and who will fall and who will be faster or smaller or bigger or longer or whatever or stronger or weaker or whatever than we all may have imagined. There'll be a lot of time spent speculating about who had a bad interview. That's one of the favorite speculations because it is the idlest of idle speculation of what what actually is a bad interview? Does it mean the person just doesn't have a great personality? Were they surly? Were they perhaps put off by someone asking if their mother had ever turned tricks? Uh, there's all kinds of things, I guess, that could be considered a, someone to interview well. But there's one or two players. I guarantee there'll be lots of, you know, smoke, fire, or some combination thereof concerning how they interviewed. Somebody will probably also have a hot week. Some players don't go to study, but it's or it's a body part. Oh, you're kind of breaking up a little bit. Oh. Oh, yeah, you're you're fine now. I can, yeah. Okay. Okay, just checking. But there's always things that come out. I mean, there's certain storylines 
how we put narratives, I guess, how young people like to put it, that come out and tell people amongst them. There's always, like you said, some guy turns out has some misfired or some unspoken from you know the past, or maybe further back than that. Hey, turns out broke your ankle. No wonder. Hey, Bible does this. You're missing. No, a meniscus, or you're missing a, you know, an ACL, a PCL. You're missing some CL. But every year, somebody has something wrong. They didn't know what's wrong with them. That's discovered, you know, during the medical. Uh, all kinds of stuff, you know, sort of, it's an annual tradition, a tradition unlike any other, Jim. So what are some of the things, when you talk about sort of the the quantifiables, how much do you put into the non-quantifiables, the the other stuff that comes out that isn't necessarily how tall, how fast, how high, all that good stuff? How how much stock do you put in the the other things that we, we get out of the timeline? Well, I mean, it it really just depends on how much teams actually uh, care about those types of things. And not really specific, specifically medical things, but just character things. You know, there's a lot of people who have two approaches to character. You have people who go, well, I don't have as many resources as NFL teams, so I'm just not even going to evaluate character. You know, I'm just not uh-huh. even going to – it's not even going to be, you know, in my idea – I'm only going to, you know, talk about what I see and what I feel comfortable with projecting. Uh, and then you have people like me that are like, well, character is as big a part of, of of anything else, you know, like in terms of production and athleticism and stuff like that. Character is just as big as any other aspect of the position. If you if you don't have a good character, if you are someone who is very violent or does drugs or whatever, has very antisocial sort of behavior uh, tendencies, you end up being suspended, you end up missing games, you end up costing your football team, you know, losing, you're losing money, basically, if you just want to talk about monetarily, if you have a player who is not playing because of these reasons. So, I kind of am with that camp, and yeah, if, if a player misses a drug test, at the combine, which going in, you know, you're going to be drug tested. I mean, it's not, it's it's, it's, called the idiot test for a reason, Jim. So basically if you do drugs at the combine, you know, or not at the combine, but before the combine, or at least in a window where you're going to get caught. Hopefully hopefully not at the combine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But basically if you get popped for drugs at the combine, there's a couple there's a couple thought processes where you go, all right, either A, he just made a mistake, he didn't time it correctly, which is still kind of dumb, but I'm just saying, like, okay, he didn't time it correctly. Then there's also the sort of thing where he just went, you know what, whatever, who cares, I'm just going to do this type of mentality, too. Uh, and, of course, that's where the whole interviews and figuring out exactly what happened and stuff like that goes into things. But for the most part, again, I just – I think you have to at least consider character uh, with players, you know, and I haven't, I just now started getting into character stuff. Again, it's a lot of information you have to get into, but as I usually say, most Hall of Fame players for the most part don't have rap sheets that are extremely long. I mean, there definitely are the sort of, 
cases like Chris Carter doing cocaine or, uh, right. you know, uh, Lawrence Taylor had a few uh, little Warren Sapp. Yeah, Sapp, you know, uh, Lawrence weed, Taylor. Randy, Randy Moss had some, you know, d- domestic violence type stuff in terms of, like, being arrested for stuff. So, I mean, right. and there's weed. definitely... Weed. And weed. But as I... As I use, I don't know. It, it, it's it's more so instinct instinctual at this point. It's but, not like a sort of data driven thing. I just have a feeling that again, if you are very productive on the football field, um, you know, like like not like oh well he's productive. No, like you are one of the most productive players. If you're especially like the Warren Sapp. <laughs> exactly. If you're that type of a guy, there. It's different from a guy who treats football as just like Robert Kadichi was a guy that I just felt like treated football as a transaction, as you know, I'm doing this to get paid, and it just showed up on the football field. It showed up in his production. I mean, he was, he's one of the least productive defensive tackles in the history of, of you know the the '90s. So. You know, even Dwayne Johnson was more productive than, than Robert Kandice. So, <laughs> so there's a fun fact. Did you tell people that? <laughs> I haven't told people that yet. Again, I, I added Dwayne Johnson just out of, you know, curiosity and fun. He but, would love that. He would. <laughs> he would love that. He actually would love that. That's the kind of thing he loves. Basically, be, you know, basically by saying, you know, uh, you had statistically no chance of being a successful NFL player, so it's a good thing that the movie stuff know worked out the wrestling stuff uh but i'm just saying that you know when you have a player who has weed problems or whatever else and he's not productive there's no sort of thing (laughs) there it's a bad combination and the and the and the biggest point i'm just trying to make is that all the time when we have these guys who have these sort of violence or drugs or whatever sort of thing they're not as productive as Randy Moss. They weren't as productive as Warren Sapp. They weren't like they were not elite productive players. They were at the very least meh, productive, you know, productive enough to at least consider guys like Joe Mixon kind of falls in that area, uh, you know, and, and stuff like that. But I just have this sort of feeling that, you know, if you have a guy who is like super like crazy, again, Randy Moss, Warren Sapp level productive, Character stuff is something, and that again, that goes back to like, is he worth the headache? If you prove that you are elite productive at the college level, I would say you're worth the headache, whatever that headache may be, you know, um, versus the sort of, well, we, which it's funny now, but the whole thing of, well, let's see if they're worth, worth the headache based on athleticism, which is a terrible thing to do, anyways, because athleticism is less, you know, correlative than, uh, uh, production, but uh, I just always, I was always fascinated by the fact that well, if he's a if he's a very athletic player, then, then that makes up for the character, which I don't think it does at all. I think the production is really the first area you should look, and then you look at the athleticism backs up. Which of course, in Randy Moss and Warren Sapp's case, they did back it up the athleticism with the with the production. So, um, but yeah, I mean, when it comes to just character stuff, I did I wait like anything else. I mean, you know, sure, I don't have all the facts, but then again, it's funny when when you have somebody who tells you, well, I don't have as many resources as the NFL, and yet the NFL, with its vast amounts of uh, resources, decided to invite every single running back to the combine except 
for Joe Mixon, maybe you should be worried. <laughs> you know, maybe you should maybe you should take a step back and go. The NFL knows a lot more about the situation than I do, and they basically said that Chris Carson from Oklahoma State is much more deserving of an invite than Joe Mixon. I mean, I'm just yep saying that when that happens, you should red you know red alarms wherever red flag you know that should come into your mind in terms of uh you know when you when when stuff like that happens as far as injury stuff goes i usually as you yeah as you people may or may not know i i worked and volunteered and worked a bit in uh the healthcare industry worked in the or which is operating room worked in the er which was it was kind of rewarding a lot of really stressful people that are angry that you're not you know stuff like that but in the OR, you know, got a chance to, you know, meet some doctors and stuff like that. My mother's also a, you know, a retired nurse. So I usually just ask those guys, like, hey, does this sound bad? What do they mean if if somebody has, like, Kandiche, you know, when when Cyrus Quanjo, not Kandiche, but when Cyrus Quanjo had his knee uh, sort of uh, thing that came out, I was asking them, like, what else was mean? nothing and, but bone on bone. Is that what you're talking about? Well, and, but, but, it's that bone on bone sounds bad, but then you just ask them the question of, okay, can you get better? You know, front, like, is this something that can get better? Uh, and, and for the most part, it's like, no, well, you can't get better from this. <laughs> no. Um, no. So then you add in the fact that his athleticism was bad, and you go, this is probably as athletic as, athletic as he's going to be. Um, this is it. Um, and if this is it, then I don't want to buy. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want none of that, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just kind of ask like, okay, what is this? Uh, you know, there were some rumors about guys with, like sickle cell anemia. Um, you know, what are sort sort of the risk factors and stuff like that? It's like anything else. I mean, there's other people who different followers on Twitter who do who are former doctors or whatever, or actual doctors who you know kind of do stuff like that. But I just kind of ask a lot of my friends because uh, a lot of my friends they did a lot of orthopedic surgery and you know knees and ankles. And Shoulders and stuff like that. So doesn't, um, doesn't Ryan Clark them. have the uh, sickle cell trait? If memory serves you correctly, yeah, Ryan Clark does. Sickle cell. The basic the basic way to explain sickle cell is it's just a sort of it's a blood disorder where your body has trouble uh, getting oxygen or moving oxygen yeah. from you know in terms of your body. So basically, you right. your oxygen blood cells are sickle and cell. dissemination is reduced. It is less exactly. efficient. And slow, which sucks. Right. When you're a football player, yeah. that sucks because you need. <laughs> when you're any kind of athlete, yeah. <laughs> when you're any kind of athlete, it sucks because you you need your body needs oxygen, and you already it's like you know basically you have one hand tied behind your back in terms of the way your your blood is it's constructed. You could still exist. You could still work in that environment. You definitely have to manage it, but it's not exactly a death kill. Like oh, he'll never be great with this you know sort of thing. <laughs> Um, you know, same thing with like diabetes. Like diabetes didn't make, uh, you, you know, uh, well, numerous players, but like Jay Cutler isn't bad because of diabetes. You know, it's just no, that's not, not why he is bad. Been the issue. It's just, oh, no. it's just something no, that no, no, you no. have to have to manage. But yeah, I mean, if a guy does have an injury at the combine or it's it, or there's a red flag from it, I'll just call a guy up and ask him. You know, like, have you heard of this? You know, are there any advanced, you know, like there's always going to be advancements in sports science, but you just want to get a, a good sort of ratio of like how bad is this? What's the long-term effects of this? 
can you play through it? You know, stuff like that, you know, uh, in terms of, cause, cause the biggest thing about injuries, it's not so much you, you can't recover from it. It's just that it, it usually becomes a recurring thing. And then it also becomes a thing of, can the guy deal with the pain tolerance of it? Now, again, football in itself, is a very painful sport. So yes. you add on another layer to that. It's kind of like with, with clowny and bone spurs and that it's a, it's a condition that's never going to go away. He's always going to be in some sort of pain, and it's just a matter of if the man can take it. Uh, and my general theory is that there, there are definitely people that, you know, you just put them on enough drugs, which is what the NFL does a lot, and then they'll, they just don't really care until they're, like, 40 years old and they can barely walk, uh, you know, like, uh, as a 70-year-old. But uh, I, I just feel like you just kind of want to know, like, what that pain tolerance level is also another thing you can't really quantify away, you know, stuff like that um for the most part but it is another thing you should consider is like what is the guy's pain tolerance how much pain can he sustain because that also plays a part into injuries and and stuff like that everybody's going to have injuries it's just a matter can they play through those injuries can they play at a high level with those uh injuries as well so it's like great lewis yeah, I was, I was just briefly, I was going to say, that's one of my concerns we'll talk about the, the quote-unquote benefits of the low-mileage running back. That's also a guy that hasn't had to manage playing hurt as much as the quote-unquote higher-mileage back. So people get so excited, oh, he's only had, you know, 159 career touches as a collegiate or whatever, and they think it's a good thing. It's like, well, what happens it's not, when it's he not gets a good thing. twice that many? It doesn't matter. There's no, there's no study. I don't care. I mean, my, I have so much data going back so long that there is no study that is going to beat my data. I, again, if you have a study that goes back to 1969, show me this study because you'll you'll definitely have a study that's two years old, but that's two years old. I mean, that's it's just not you can't beat you can't beat it. It's just it's unbeatable. Um, for the most part, the whole mileage argument in general is, is it, it's a fallacy because you're basically it's one of those things where you, you think about it and you go, oh, yeah, you, you, you definitely would have a longer career if you had uh, less carries and stuff like that. But that's, it's just not true because, again, it's a, the things that make a great player are, are, are about mileage, are about being able to take the load, a, a big load, a good chunk of the offense, if you will. Um, and right. if you take that away – then what are we talking about? We're not talking about a great player anymore. You're basically shooting for average, you know, like Blau Powell and stuff like that, uh, which that right. isn't or your goal. Even good. goal. Right. You might even get Your good. goal in evaluating a, a player is, is to find players that are going to be great, and low mileage doesn't equal great. So why we even care about low mileage? Is, 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 that's my main contention is, uh, for the most part, yeah, if you have low mileage, you're definitely going to have less injuries, but that's just because you were used less. When you start to ramp that up, how many injuries that you like, there there's really was no correlation between low end and high end in terms of, you know, backs that had career ending injuries and stuff like that. Because injuries are in, inherently unpredictable to a certain extent. And, you know, you don't really know how they how a player is going to deal with that injury once they get that, you know, like Adrian Peterson can tear his ACL and then come back and have one of his best seasons ever. Whereas another guy tears his ACL and he, that he retires, you know, that's it. Right. Exactly. Soon afterwards. So 
And yeah. I'll let you get back to what you were saying before about sort of what things in the combine matter and why and why they sometimes don't. But just saying this is just one more, one more moment. I would think, in my mind, what would be more interesting to me is to see state quarterback, quote-unquote, mileage. Like the quarterbacks who got hit the most in college and hit the most, you know, in high school. Does that, tra- does that translate? Now, of course, it would be exhaustive because, you know, people don't keep necessarily or even prize that kind of data well, the same way they do touches or yeah. carries or catches. But. I mean, they get QB hits. You could look at that. You could look at sacks, you know, team-oriented team sacks. So you would have to go to every single team and then look at how many sacks the opponents had against the team and stuff like that. So it's definitely doable, but I, mean, I, I wonder if it, it would be interesting. Yeah, because that that I think I think you might. I mean, I don't know if there's any correlations to be found, but I I think you'd be at least probing something interesting because a running back doesn't have that many doesn't have much control over you know the number of hits they take. They do have control over at least to some extent how severe some of the hits are. Once again, it's something that a running back that gets more carries figures out is how not to take bad hits that sometimes a running back who doesn't take that many carries hasn't figured out as much. Exactly. It's the Frank Gore versus the Marion Barber effect, I guess, you know. Yes. Um, which, you know, no offense to Marion Barber. It's just that Marion Barber was the guy that, you know, when, once he hit that corner, he was looking to lower the shoulder and then take out the defensive back. Frank Gore would hit the corner and then get out of bounds. Because he wants to, because I mean, eventually we, you don't get to play that long. To be, you don't get to be a Frank Gore unless you realize that there's sometimes where you have to cash in your chips and you know and and right. and and just be, hey, I got I got a six yard gain, I'm done. You know, I'm not going to outrun him anyways. I'm Frank Gore. You know, so I got to <laughs> get out get to the five yard line. Like I'm not gonna. I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm not Chris Johnson. I'm not going to be. You know, hitting a home run for the most part. Uh, anymore, anyways. But you know, I'm. I'm. Th- this is what I'm going to do, uh, and I think um, that is something that I, at least in terms of what I, when I do my scouting, it's one of the reasons why I've, I've leaned. Like with my running back rankings, has been you know Dalvin Cook, Chris, Christian McCaffrey, and uh, Leonard Fournette, and I've always been leaning towards McCaffrey just because he's the guy who who doesn't who who, who has sort of the Matt Forte-esque sort of ability to, to, you know, keep keep him keep his body fresh, not take too many hits, not try to uh, do stuff, which is why some people don't like him because everybody likes to see that running back lower the shoulder and do, you know, like take out a guy and do all that stuff, which is great. It's just it's right. not something that's very good practically long-term. You know, like you're not going to last very long when you have that running style. So, well... I'm not old enough to remember that one of the big criticisms of Franco Harris, right, was that he didn't Jim Brown it out every carry. He didn't try to break nine tackles. He didn't try to lower the shoulder. He would step out of bounds at times. And people hated him for it. Some, at least. You know, they didn't like the fact that he was preserving his body or whatever term you want to use. They wanted to see a guy, you know, live and die in every carry. And Jim Brown managed to do it. I mean, but it's a short list of guys who managed to do that and do that at a high level for a long time. Earl Campbell did it at a super high level for about six years. It was amazing to watch. I mean, still, I 
very lucky and blessed that I got a chance to watch Earl Campbell's college and pro career from beginning to end. And it, there's no words to describe some of the things he did. No offense to Marshawn Lynch. Like a lot of young people think that's the greatest power back of all time. But, oh, I've come to you, my brothers and sisters, to tell you that if you have not had a chance to watch, pick a game and watch it from beginning to end of Earl Campbell's career and see what he did and how he did it. Pretty from his prime years. Watch some 78 Earl Campbell, and you'll come back and thank me. Afterwards. It was unbelievable what he did, but as you pointed out, and are a thousand percent correct. So some people say, well, mileage, mileage, mileage. No, I nothing with mileage. I mean, obviously, he had a lot of carries in college and a tremendous amount of carries in, in the pros, but that's not what the issue was. I mean, he just, he, he had no regard. Uh, as the old saying goes, treated his by like a rental. Uh, he, he just, Oof, I and mean, price, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. there's been numerous articles about, you know, the type of him things that he's learning how to walk. Yes. Just being right. able to get up and, and walk to open the door, you know, to, to see somebody at the door is, is a challenge. You know, it's not, um, it's not something that's easy. So, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, again, if we're in an era of caring about player safety, then we have to at least appreciate players who uh, are playing know, safer, who, who care, and, no. and play safer. You know, uh, if you if you want the the the, and and just if you care about the players as well. I mean, if you if you care about their long term health, um, you should be promoting this and sitting them down and going, hey, you know, I know that you want to do this, but you got to play a little smarter. You have to play a little. Uh, better to you know preserve yourself because this this ain't gonna crack you know this ain't gonna work um, for you. So right. running full speed into people is awesome to watch. I mean, it, we we get a visceral cool. thrill from it. There's no phase around it. that. Awesome. Everybody likes it. However, that being said, when you are evaluating someone, as you said, as a long term prospect, you're going to you know, a two-contract player, right? Not a one-contract player. If you're evaluating a person who's a two-contract player, you're going to pay them twice. You want to see that they know how to manage their body. They only get one of those. Yeah, fortunately. But trying to fix your stuff up. But yeah, I mean, in general, I, I just don't I just don't like the mileage uh, argument because there's just no real data to back it up. And there's nope. no data to back it up in terms of quality um, outcomes. Every single great running back, really great running back, backs that have had, you know, multiple all-pro careers were guys who had a ton of mileage and usage right. in college. So you can't just make the mileage argument, argument well, is, is gutted by the fact that you can't find them in the Hall of Fame. Find me the low mileage running back who had a Hall of Fame career. You can't. None it of doesn't them, exist. Really? I mean, there are you have pro bowlers, but again, you, you'll have pro bowlers, you'll have guys who uh, they were more in the 70s, though, but you'll have guys who retired. But, but you'll have guys in the 70s or 80s who had, you know, relatively low mileage and had, you know, okay careers. Uh, but if you're talking about that special guy, you know, um, 
the O.J. Simpson, the Marcus Allen, you know, the Barry Sanders, you know, those types of guys. Uh, those guys are yeah. Eric Dickerson, you know, all those players. They were high mileage oh, guys. Jim Brown, all of it, all the Barry Sanders, all the great ones. You know, I mean, it's just that simple. All of the truly great ones. Now, moving forward back to where we were, Combine. Of course, players are weighed in, inspected, you know, uh, medically. They check for, you know, obviously things from the obvious, you know, like you said, checking for injuries. And the whole original purpose of the Combine was to combine uh, the expense and time needed to do the medical checks all in one place. That was the whole original purpose of the combine. The term combine was to, that's why they used that term. They were combining all their medicals, and then the other stuff came later. Then you add to that, they look for things like imbalances in the body, and, you know, you know all kinds of stuff, uh, body composition, you know, the bod pod, and, you know, every, you know, some of I'd love to know some of that body composition analysis stuff, but that's still not released to the public. Uh, but they do a whole bunch of that stuff, right? And as we said, there's interviews with teams, the medical testing, the testing for substance abuse and performance enhancers, blah, blah, blah. And there'll be rumors about that as well, you know, who may have possibly tested positive for uh, performance enhancers and the vehement denials and all that fun stuff. And then eventually you'll get to, you know, the actual on-field testing. 40, the vertical, the broad shot, the three cone, the short shuttle. Uh, of course, we'll get a chance to... The bench is sort of falling out of favor with a lot of people. I'm still a big fan of the bench, not because it tells me who is, quote-unquote, football strong, which is one of those things that, like I said, would be better better measured by something, oh, like, say, a squat, or, uh, which, I, as you said, Jim, it'll never happen in a million years. I get it. Or even, you know, a power clean, and preferably to me, you know, a little power clean, little squat. Wouldn't that be max, max? You know, we could do it with a relatively, quote, unquote, lightweight, uh, you know, how many times can you power clean, you know, 175 or 200 pounds or whatever? How many times can you squat 250 pounds? You know, but as you pointed out, it'll never happen to me. So, so I'm just giving up. Obviously, it'll never happen. But you do get a chance to at least see two things that are to me borne out by uh, by at least seeing someone once again lifting. One is you get a chance to see if there are spotable, obvious strength imbalances between the left and right side. I don't know how people watch that, but I watch that intently to see if. I mean, obviously, a guy's right-handed or left-handed, but his left or right's going to be stronger than his other side. But is it even more than normal? Is Are you seeing one side fire out well before the other and seems to have a lot more strength in, or, or muscle endurance than the other? And I always look for that. And how early do you start to see that difference between the strength between left and right? And sometimes, once again, it can be indicative of an undisclosed injury. Then, you know, obviously I look to see, you know, obviously a little bit, you know, how many reps and how, even just how easy it is for him. I mean, some guys just seem to almost get bored and stop, you know, like it looks like he had more left in the tank, um, but he just decided that uh, this is the number I thought I was going to hit. I hit that number. I'm good. And then what guy fights and fights and fights for the last rep? That's sort of just a cool sort of football character thing I look for. The guy who really, really, really is trying to 
fight and fight tooth and nail for that one last rep. It may not actually mean anything. In fact, it probably means nothing, but I just like to see it. And then what guy, you know, I do like to see if a guy sort of looks like he's shutting it down sometimes. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure you could have done more, but yeah, I don't know. Probably, probably, you know, splitting the hair too fine there. But how much do you care? It, how do you weight the actual testing itself? Like, obviously, it's all important, but which things do you put more or less stock in as you work through the, the kind of things you do? Well, it, it's a very complicated question. As you know, I'm not I'm not the guy who's taking all the numbers and putting it in one number and then, you know, giving it a, you know, fancy name, stuff like that. Um, for the most part, if you're just talking about the bench press, the bench press is all about hitting a certain level of reps. Uh, for most positions, at least line positions, you're talking about 20, 20, 21, 22 reps or more. If you're talking about skill positions, you're talking about like 10, you know, 15, around there. Uh, but there have been guys who didn't do the bench at all. There's also been players who only did like four reps. You know, Tyron Matthew uh, <laughs> famously only did four reps on the bench when he went to the combine. Um, and I consider him to be a, a skill position in terms of a, uh, you know, a, a free safety, you know, type of position. Um, you know, four reps is definitely not impressive, but, you know, if you're a free safety. <laughs> not only not impressive, but it's one of those rare times when I could literally say, okay, I could beat that. I, I could have actually literally beat yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So, but but for the most part, again, it's about hitting it's about hitting that one number. Um, it's it doesn't matter if you get thirty, it doesn't matter if you get forty. There really isn't any uh, again a, a correlation from twenty to forty. There's no quality correlation there. It's just about hitting that one number. I mean, as a result, when I when I do grading on the bench, I just see if they hit that number. If they don't hit that number, you know, um, pretty you know straightforward sort of approach when it comes to the bench. And again, every every position is different. Uh, like I said, you know, line positions you're usually looking for 20 plus, and skill positions is around 10, 15 ish. Uh, running back, linebackers are usually 17, 19 ish. Is kind of what you're looking for. Uh, but again, I I wouldn't. If if a linebacker had 17 reps on the bench, I wouldn't be making fun of him and going, "Wow, you can only do 17 reps, huh?" Because again, if if there have been other Pro Bowl linebackers that had 17 reps on the bench, why would I be making fun of you over getting 17 reps? I mean, I'm just yeah. It's like when Jadavian Clowney was was doing his bench reps, and they're like, "Wow, he only did 20 something," you know. Um, he could he didn't do 40 like this other guy. Uh, which that was the other thing too. When I when I looked at arm length uh, at the bench, when I broke it out into like percentile, so the the top twenty five percentile in arm length, the the uh, the second tier to average, so like that average to above average sort of area, and then of course below average, average to below average, and then the bottom twenty five percentile. The difference in actual reps, the average, was only about two reps uh, between each of those areas. So, 
a guy with longer arms typically has about six reps less on average than a guy who has uh, the lowest arm arm length. But again, six reps is really not that big of a, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a big difference, but I just always felt like it was, uh, it was not substantial enough to, to warrant the sort of, like whenever a guy who has short arms does 40 reps, people go, oh my gosh, look at that guy. But um, <laughs> it, it wasn't really, uh, there were guys who have long arms, you know, we get 34 reps, you know, stuff like that. So, but, but yeah, I mean, the bench, my big thing is, is I really wish that they did a thing that measured punching power, you know, um, that sort of thing, because I, I always have been sort of a believer in terms of, whatever position you're playing, except for say quarterback, uh, you know, punch, that punch is important at every single position. If you're a running back, it's really important in terms of setting up pass protection, uh, also stiff arms. Uh, if you're a wide receiver, it's really good in terms of, you know, getting off of press coverage uh, and also, you know, blocking. Uh, same thing goes with the offensive line and defensive line, you know, getting, you know, that punch is what sets up your, you know, your ability to get your hand positioning. So, um, I always felt like if they had something that kind of measured that uh, efficiently, that would be something that would be intriguing or interesting to, uh, you know, to see. The only thing I've, I've noticed is uh, typically guys who have bigger hands have more punching power. That's, that's kind of boxing related to, you know, if you have bigger hands, you have more weight. So you're naturally going to have more, you know, punching power. Uh, but, uh but it isn't something that actually uh, has like a quality correlation, stuff like that, if you will. Like it's, it's the hand size is the same as like the bench where you just kind of want to hit a certain area and you're good. Uh, same thing with like arm length and some of those other sort of things. There, there, there are things that people put a lot of weight in when you have like really, really long arms when it really doesn't matter as much as just getting above average or getting to that spot uh, of, of where there were a lot of successful players. Here's and that's what I wish. Speaking of of measuring strength, I do wish that, that we did have something, something that actually dealt with uh, showing punch power, as you just pointed out. You know where you were, someone actually was, you know, in fact, that perfectly, ideally, if you if people love force plate stuff, you'd have something where you'd have you know, some sort of robot-y, cyborg-y, dummy, whatever, you know, because they have those things now uh, that could sort of mimic a human in size and mass that would be filled with sensors, put a dude in a stance, let him fire off and slam into the thing as hard as he wants, right? <laughs> as hard as he can. Right. Say three times, yeah. you know, average out whatever that number that's generated in, you know, joules or whatever the that would generate power, boom, you know, if, because the spark people have been looking for a number like that and they, they go about it in sort of a jambalaya approach. This would give yeah. them, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. This would give them that number, but it would not be a jambalaya approach. It would be a right. filet mignon approach. Here it is. Very much. Pure. Specifically, what is it? You know, because again, you know, even if we found a thing that actually measured punching power, we may find out that it's just about getting a certain level of punching power. You know, um, it's not about who can hit the hardest as much as hitting at a certain 
level, you know. And that's the big thing about the combat that I think people don't understand is that it's it's not necessarily about having the highest 40-yard dash or the highest whatever. It's about just hitting into a certain range of possibilities. Uh, and sometimes that range of possibilities means you just have to hit that 25 percentile, you know, which is really easy to do. It's it's basically like there's a lot of unsuccessful offensive linemen who have bottom 10 percentile arm length, but how many offensive linemen are going to get bottom 10 percentile arm length? You, you understand what I'm saying? Like that's something that really isn't going to happen that often. Um, so I just say they were punching power. I mean, it, you know, the power toss and stuff like that. I really just don't get that stuff, man. You know? Um, I mean, I kind well, of, you know. The thing that bothers me about it is it isn't very good at measuring quote-unquote football strength. Um, no. It, it does measure technique fairly well. You get an idea of who learns the power toss technique better than who doesn't learn that technique well. And right. I mean, you get a good, you get a good idea, a little bit of an idea of, of sort of hip flexibility and explosiveness, a little bit of an idea of explosiveness, but yeah, mostly it measures, right, hip torque. It measures, you get a good sense of hip, hip torque and you get some mid-back, lower back power, which is something you do use. And I think it's not football applicable, but it's not the most football applicable. You know, like there's other things. I think they're messing with us. It's the okay. whole. It's the whole brand. My my big issue with Spark is just that if if Nike never endorsed Spark, if James Coburn invented Spark, would anybody care? And I don't think they would. You know, if right. if just some Joe Schmo invented it, but because Nike put their stamp on it, and because there really isn't that many uh, athleticism sort of Based things to like measure athleticism in high school, people just kind of gravitated toward it and went, "Ha ha, here's the thing," um, to 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 help do that. Uh, even though athletes change tremendously from high school to college, so uh, I I just I don't know. I just always felt like the power toss in general was just them kind of yanking our leg, you know, like just playing messing with us. You know, in terms of like, sure, it, it's something that that is measuring some sort of athletic sort of thing and of course when when the spark people who try to do it with the nfl they usually go with the bench press uh, but i just you know i don't know i just don't here's get it. here's where i think you would find that particular like where it would help you to find people like olympic rowing i think you find a lot of people who could be awesome you know on a skull or you know some of those uh because that's the kind of that's what you need to find the person that can do that at a super high level and if they can if they have arm length to go with it that person would probably be great if you just wanted to get a bunch of young athletes together and figure out who you should put into a development program for our olympic rowing team hip that that would be because because it's 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 that kind of power that helps you to be especially if you have long arms to go with it to be a great exactly. rower <laughs> there exactly. you go that's the i think I mean, to me, if, if you're just talking about like what athletic traits for a football player, punch, punching power is definitely one of those. It, just you know, by explaining all the different things that you have to do with a punch, flexibility is another because it comes, you know, comes down to leverage uh, and your ability to to get leverage. The low man wins. 
you know, the common thing. And speed, I think, is also helpful because, again, long speed, you know, you have to go sideline, sideline, stuff like that is definitely applicable. And then explosiveness is, is a big sort of, you know, application. So those are kind of the big things when it comes to football. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I've done a, you know, a couple of shows where you say, you know, how would you, quote, unquote, fix the combine? And that's always one of the things I, I always talk about is there's a better, there's got to be a better way to, quote, unquote, measure football strength. And some people always bring up that darn spark stuff whenever I bring that up. And we both talked about the, the limitations and weaknesses and, and, once again, sort of the, the jambalaya or the uh, gumbo or whatever approach where you're, you're trying to throw everything in the pot. And it's been demonstrated, as you pointed out, I think better and more than most, you actually get better results analysis in terms of analysis when you put the fewest number of things in the pot, not the most. Pretty much because you're, you're not trying to – you're basically trying to find what is the main um, – it's kind of like this. You know, when I was doing market share – uh, data, I was looking at, you know, offensive market share, yardage market share, and, and touchdown market share. There was a correlation at touchdown market share. You know, like there was uh, a correlation in terms of success with touchdown market share, but passing market share was, you know, about 35 to 40%. Yeah, but it was like, you know, 40% better. Than, well, than, than uh, touchdown market share. So I was just like, why do I even care about touchdown market share if passing market share is the thing to look at? Okay. Right, but that again, that's just to say that you know you, you'll find a variable, you'll test that variable, and then you'll find out that it doesn't matter. Like essentially, like I just said, if you have arm length that is above ten percentile, that's where you have all the quality outcomes, and there's just as many quality outcomes in the average area as there are the high end area. So why would I? give a guy more points or more credit for having longer arms when there isn't a statistical difference between having average arm length and having above average arm length, you know? So, I mean, that's just kind of, that's just my only issue with the sort of gumbo approach is you're just kind of throwing everything together and yeah, it's giving you a number and it definitely would have some sort of predictive ability, you know, like, because you're adding these things which do have correlations. You know, arm length does have some correlations, and this has some correlations as well. But you're also making your data less, you know, strong, if you will. You're diluting it, you know, which is not what you want to do. I mean, if you're trying to find players, uh, you know, d diluting or, or making your ability to find more successful players less, efficient and less effective is not exactly something I would say is a smart thing to do, but that's what people, again, teams like single numbers. There's been lots of articles I've been reading now where teams take the combine. Oh, we, 
our massive, you know, staff has taken all these numbers and distilled it into two numbers, which helps us to have a comprehensive. I'm like, no, that's not how you do it. That's not what you do. I mean, you don't just take the numbers and turn it into two or one number. I mean, that's, Sure, it can give you an idea of who is a really great all-around athlete, but that's not very good in terms of figuring out the things that make successful athletes because not every great athlete is going to be a great uh, football player. And at the same time, there's also great football players who, who are kind of averages athletes, you know, for the most part. So I I don't know. But that, that That's just my general issue with things like Spark and stuff like that is you're – one, I don't – high school spark stuff I really don't believe in, and the NFL-level <laughs> spark stuff I just think is a bunch of uh, – you know, sure, there's stuff to it, but I just don't think it's really good at finding players to fit scheme and, and to fit specifically what you want to do, uh, if, if you will. You can definitely find guys who are great all-around athletes, but I don't think that should be your goal. Your goal shouldn't be to find great athletes it should be to find athletes that are great in one area or two areas or combination of those areas and stuff like that so here's some of the things that i look for outreach people always talk about winning and losing the combine so-and-so won the combine lost the combine whatever and you can't win the combine or lose i mean to a certain extent if you do a Deion sanders bo jackson thing where you run some time that no one's ever seen before and everyone's brain explodes, you can sort of say that they, quote, unquote, won the combine or lost the combine. Or you can say someone lost it if they expect you to go out and run some amazing time and you run a very pedestrian time. And people usually talk about it, particularly with the 40. You must never hear someone say, wow, only a 32-and-a-half-inch vertical is expecting at least 35. He lost the combine. <laughs> you know, you almost never hear that. Uh, people usually put it all on the 40 when it comes to making winners and losers. And they'll occasionally mention if somebody runs a heavy, once again, Trey Wayne's leaps to mind, right? Uh, a lot of us were like, what? When we saw his three cone and short shuttle numbers took his three cone and thought to ourselves, well, that, that has to be concerning. That has to, and you basically found that there was no multiple all pro player in the history of the game at cornerback, at least as you could find numbers for that had run a, a time at or around his time. You found guys became NFL starters, I believe, you know, which, you know, he's become. He's become an NFL starter. And some people like him and talk about how he's going to keep getting better and better. And he I probably will improve. I mean, we can assume or hope that a young player will continue to improve. But I think you pointed out correctly, there's a certain cap either on how he can be used or how good he can become if he's used the way that most NFL corners are used simply because his ability to to redirect and change change direction rapidly is restricted. I mean, he's, you know, we always talk about tight tight hips, whatever, feet, you know, whatever you, wherever you think that tightness resides, somewhere in the lower half of his body, uh, he's less fluid than all the great ones, whoever you want to name. You know, obviously guys like Dion and Champ come to mind right away, but even, you know, even guys like Wheatley, not Wheatley, I mean, um, Ty Law or, um, you know, even really good corners, you know, guys who yeah. maybe aren't great. Asante Samuel, whoever you want to name, even those guys. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't you, – you have to feel there's oh, – so I guess we're going to sort of talk about 
position specific. So we'll start with corners because this is a, everyone's raving about the corner class or how many great corners or possibly great corners there might be in this class. Yeah. There's a lot of very good corners at least. Good. I think that we're going to find some, yeah, I think we'll find some good corners and maybe some very good corners. So some people are starting to move, at least mentally, starting to move some of these corners to other positions. And we'll see if people are right. It, are there certain numbers that indicate to you that somebody maybe isn't a cornerback at all or be better served but to move to, you know, I know, once again, the dumping ground for, for slow corners is, of course, safety, which I won't go on another mini rant about. But what what numbers tell you maybe this person should be considered a possible conversion to another position? Will you start with me look at corners? Hmm. Well, that's a really tough question because or or let me rephrase the question. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is there is there a threshold that says this person should probably or would be more likely? That's how I put it. Would be more likely to do well. He should move to a, safety because of these athletic sort of things. Right, right, right. And even man zone, even those sort of break ah. line between man and zone corner. I mean. I know there's not a single number, but okay. are there certain numbers that are indicative I'll, of somebody? Go ahead. I'll explain it like this. Okay. A lot of the things that make zone corners elite are things that also make safeties elite, short shoulder, three cones, um, those types of things. So if a guy runs 4.6 or 4.7 and you don't think he's a man corner, which I would agree with he's not a man corner, um, then I definitely think that putting him in safety wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. He still would have those limitations. It's just those things would be at safety. And then it just becomes a matter of if he has the uh, the mental uh, ability to, to play that, that safety position. But for the most part, I've never, I've never like looked at a, uh, the, the one thing I could say about the, the difference between safety and cornerback, just number wise, is that uh, safeties are about, Point one slower on average than cornerback in terms of like NFL um, sort of level. So basically, the average speed of a safety is about four five ish, and the average speed of a cornerback is about four four ish uh, in terms of like quality, you know, starter types. But as I say that, and as you you should hear, like that isn't really that big of a difference. You know, like that's not a huge um, sort of thing. I, I, I just think in terms like the things that make uh, safeties really, really good, uh, or you know, at least one of the bigger things is uh, flexibility. You know, short shell three count. Um, and if a cornerback has a really good short shell three count, then I would say the conversion is is something that can possibly happen. But I don't necessarily think it's always going to work out. You know. Like another example is Marcus, uh, Marcus Gilchrist. You know, he was another. I didn't even realize that he he was a cornerback at San Diego, and then they moved him to safety, and then he's a safety on the Jets right now. Uh, he's he was a cornerback who turned into a safety. He wasn't a bad athlete at all. He actually was a pretty good athlete. Uh, he he just happened to move to safety. So I don't necessarily believe in the whole. Well, if you run four six, you're going to survive at safety. But I will say this: if you don't have a very good short shell three cone that puts you in a strong safety kind of thing, kind of box, if you will, the box safety box, I guess. And right. uh, that, it, it, 
really limit, um, you know, again, the, the really great free safeties are guys that, that have really good change of direction, really good short shell three count sort of area. So if you, if you have a guy who's free safety size and he doesn't have a very good short shell three count, then that, that really kind of limits, which is the big thing with Jabril Peppers is, like, how is he going to test as an athlete? Because if he tests like a strong safety, then we're talking about a, a, a free safety body you know, basically, we're talking about a guy who has the body of a free safety but wins like a strong safety, and then the question becomes, is he going to be able to consistently win with those tools? Like, how he wins, does he have the physical ability to win uh, with? And there, the, there are people who predict he's going to run in the 4-3, including some people say low 4-3. Sure, three. Uh, but <laughs> what's the short shell three count? You know, right. I'm just – Throwing that out there. I mean, sure, he may run 4-3. He may run 4-4. But who cares about that if you don't have a really good short? Justin Gilbert ran 4-3. But he also had a 4-4 short shot and like a 7-2-ish three count. You know, not very good change of direction. Uh, now, that isn't the, the biggest part. Like, the biggest issue with him was just that he didn't really like to tackle. He wasn't very well tackler. And, he, you know, like there were other things there. But – he had more things characteristic-wise with a strong safety than he did uh, with LaRon Landry, which I don't want to point you out, LaRon Landry, but I'm just saying as an example, the LaRon Landry type of safety is the guy who is explosive, super fast, stiff in terms of flexibility. You know. Right, yes. And there's nothing wrong with those guys. If, if that's a strong safety, if that's your guy that you have in the box, if you have, you know, exploding and, uh, you know, hitting things downhill, that's that's good. That That's something that can work. But if you ask the, him to play free safety, Landry, I don't necessarily think that's good. LeVon Landry outproduced, if, unless I'm I'm incorrect, and you would be the person who would, who would answer this, but LeVon Landry outproduced uh, Peppers. Oh, yeah. LeVon Landry was, was a great overall productive player. I mean – Peppers' big issue is turnovers, um, interceptions. The things, the things that that uh, the reason why safeties get paid usually is is their ability to turn the football over. You know, people remember, um, you know, I don't know Ed Reed, you know, stuff like that, Earl Thomas, whatever, you know, stuff like that. Ball hawk, right? Ball hawk. That's what we want. Um, but at that's every that's why position, Malik Hooker gets so much love. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that's the one area that Peppers is, is not – again, he has more things in common with Eric Reed at, from a production profile than he does, you know, Ed Reed or, you know, any of the players, Tyron Matthew, uh, you know, Earl Thomas, any of those guys that he's been compared to. He doesn't have any of those things in common with any of those guys. He has more things in common with a strong safety like Eric Reed than he does uh, really, really – dynamic free safety guys. Yeah. Which I would think is a concern, depending on, again, how big he is, how tall he is, what's his, you know, what, what's his size, what's the short show three count, stuff like that, which hopefully gets answered, hopefully he doesn't pull a hand or something, you know, like he did against Ohio State. <laughs> so the great, so getting back to the great corners, the guys who did become multiple All-Pros, Hall of Famers, what, if you're sort of looking at the, most of those guys, the threshold for, for them to be that kind of player, well, what kinds of numbers in terms of 
not only production, but also physical measurables. Where did they actually come in terms of 40 short shuttle three cone vertical? And I guess broad. Well, the first one is they were very young players. Uh, they were 91 percentile or higher uh, in terms of uh, age at that position um, for their error as well, uh, which is, which, again, 91 percentile higher is very, very young. You know, 21 years old, around there, you know, super, super young, under 20. Chad Bailey was one of those guys that came in. He was about 20, wasn't even 21 yet when he entered. Um, you know, so that, that they were very, very – and we're talking about, again, the five-time All-Pro guys, not the the A.J. Bowie's or whatever, you know, the guys that just kind of come around one year and then, oh, your paycheck. Some of the guys who were great, great, great players, they were that sort of age. They also – MSA rating, which is a new – again, it's a new thing. Um, it's only a new thing because it was trying to figure out how to value strength of schedule only in the sense of the, the one thing I always noticed when it came to players who played at lower level competition is that there was a, there was a difference in how dominant a player at that level of competition had to be, to be a, a, a to be a special, special player, uh, if you will. Uh, so like there definitely were guys who were very productive in those areas and became starters, but they, they weren't elite players, but there was a noticeable difference. When I did MSA and I added that to, the stuff, it, it became more clear that strength of schedule does play a role, not a huge role, but it, it does play a role in terms of figuring out how to compensate for a guy who plays in the SEC, or not even the SEC, a guy who plays a really, really tough schedule. Like the toughest schedules this year were guys who played in the Big Ten, actually. Uh, and players who actually played in Florida had like average strength of schedule. You know, so I think people um, would be shocked to hear someone say that, Jim. I, I know they would, but uh, that's what the data said. And again, the, the strength of schedule data is from you know college reference. So, um, but the one thing I noticed was just that again, strength of schedule is, is always different every year. Uh, but for the most part, it does make sense because it takes in a lot of different, like it takes in their own sort of algorithm to come up with that number. Um, and at the very least, I noticed that, you know, you do want guys producing at a certain level. But anyways, MSA is, you know, all the production sort of stuff, solo tackle, market share, uh, strength schedule, and then, of course, age. And in that, you all pro guys were at least 78 or higher when it came to that one particular uh, metric. So, which is pretty high, you know. For, for that particular uh, data. And this is going all the way back to Deion Sanders, by the way. So this is as far back as that goes, uh, if you will, which I think is pretty far. I'm trying to get it farther. But, uh, but yeah, so the MSA is sort of that area. When it comes to solo tackle, you want guys who have 61.1 or higher in terms of solo tackle market share. Uh, and, again, guys you play sort of man – systems don't usually have a ton like again zone corners you know cornerbacks that come out of systems that are more zone oriented typically have higher solo tackle market share than guys who play in man but at the very least that's the low end that you want you want at least 61.10 or higher in terms of all pro uh, cornerbacks and there's definitely a few named guys we might you know talk about who didn't hit that area uh, and then of course pass deflection market share which is another 
Uh, I think the ESPN guy, uh, I think Brian Burke or whatever, is making fun of uh, uh, the GM, John Robinson, from from the Titans because he went on air and he was talking about how they were using pass deflection stuff to find players. You know, players who get their hand on the ball a lot uh, typically have uh, a lot of success. And his big example when he was on the Patriots is Logan Ryan. Like, they were really big into that number, and Logan Ryan was one of the better uh, testers in terms of uh, pass deflection. Uh, I, I don't know if they use market share. That's more of a thing that I do, but definitely market share in terms of like the, the number of pass deflections he got. And that area is 71.18 or higher in terms of all pro and pro bowl cornerbacks, uh, which is really high. In terms of uh, height, you're talking about 5'11 or higher is where the all pro guys. And you can be a pro bowler if you're 5'9". That's all the people that are like, oh, well, he's 5'9", he's going to suck. No. Yeah. Daryl Green would like to remind people who was not quite 5'9", even, that, yes, you can make it. You can make it if you're not 5'9". It's just in our – and this is more so with the era that we're in right now, but right now, back to Deion Sanders, uh, 5'11 or taller is where the consistently all-pro guys were. There were Pro Bowl guys who were shorter – but it's just to say that just because you're a short guy doesn't mean that you're not going to have success. Arm length was 32 inches or longer for multiple R-Pro guys. 30 inches or longer is where Pro Bowl guys are, which, again, if you don't have 32-inch arm length, you could still be a Pro Bowl. You could still be a really, really impactful cornerback uh, if you have 30-inch arm length, which is why people need to shut up about this. <laughs> I mean, you know, most cornerbacks are going to have 30-inch arm length. so. Uh, I just, I just always, it always irks me when people are like, oh, 31 inch arm, like short arms, you know, it's not going to be good. I'm like, eh, eh, whatever. So, I mean, that, that's kind of where that sort of area is. In terms of explosiveness, you want guys who have 76.02 or higher. And this is with, uh, you know, vertical broad jump against that density. So all pro guys are explosive. Speed score was 88.25 or higher. All pro guys were really, really fast, which is the main thing that most teams care about, which, like I said, Bill, I kind of get why they care about speed, but because of that, it's really, really high. You know, 88.25 is really, really high in terms of consistently dominant cornerbacks. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to be that fast to play in zone games and, and to get really, really high you know, contracts, Josh Norman, stuff like that. Uh, and then, of course, flexibility, which is a big, 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 big thing, which is the thing I was talking about at the safety position. All pro flexibility, 100% of those guys were 76.41 or higher. So for the most part, if you're talking about an all pro cornerback, you're talking about a guy that has above average, significantly above average flexibility, a guy that has significantly high speed, a guy that has significantly high explosiveness, a guy that has really, really long arms, a guy that is taller than everybody else, a guy that is above average in terms of every sort of measurable uh, thing in college, played a relatively tough schedule, and is young than everybody else. Right. So ideally, and that's how you, you get the have, most starts of cornerbacks. And if, especially for the and Champagne, you're talking about the Dion's. The Woodsons, both Woodsons. Uh, right. Right. Almost, right. I mean, that's sort. I mean, Charles Woodson and Rod Woodson are essentially the physical ideal man cornerbacks 
I would imagine, in terms of how they measured height, explosiveness, length, strength, essentially perfect, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, for the position. Exactly. You know, watching Charles Wilson in Michigan is, again, we have all these cornerbacks in this class, and I don't think there's anything wrong with them, but none of them look like Charles Woodson. So why are we, or Rod Woodson, for that matter. <laughs> why are we marking these cornerbacks in the top ten if they don't look anything like Deion Sanders, they don't look like Charles Woodson, they don't look like Champ Bailey, even they, they don't look like any of those types of guys. So why are we mocking them there? Or even Darrell Reeves, for that matter. I know Reeves has, you know, gone down a little bit, but he was another one of those guys that in terms of just, you know, change of direction, hips, you know, feet, was, you know, crazy good in terms of that sort of stuff. So, Well, you know, I'll tell you who I see. I see guys who are going to be James Hasty. I see guys who are going to be uh, Charles James. I see guys who are going to be uh, – Brandon, uh, what was his name? Well, Brandon Merriweather was safety, but I think there's a Brandon Merriweather out there as well. You mentioned Laurent Landry. People forget what a freak athlete Laurent Landry was. Yeah, he um, was I mean, he ran four three eight. There's not too yeah. many four three safeties running around loose. I mean, God no. in heaven, he was ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, remember Marcus McCauley? I mean, you're a Fresno State guy. Yeah, yeah. People were super excited about that kid. He was six feet and three quarters, twenty three pounds, ran four four one, uh you know, quick. The people who were big into technique loved his back pedal. Uh one thing I noticed was he was not super ball aware. Uh, he's one of those guys that sort of tended to find the ball late. But yeah, right. I mean he right, but he exactly. looked the part, man. He really, really looked the part. Oh yeah, uh, I mean a lot of guys look you know look the part. Yeah, um, yep. I think I think but, uh, David Irons, he's in this class. If you like David Irons, he's in this class. Tanar Jackson, remember Tanar Jackson, Syracuse, he's in this class. Um, yeah, you know, there's guys who are going to be eight, nine years. Antoine Kason. Yeah, Antoine Kason's in this class. You like him? Quentin yeah. Jammer. Quentin Jammer. There's a couple of Quentin Jammers in this class. Who had a nice little inbooker and made a lot of money. I, I, for some reason, I went back and looked at how much he made. He made a lot of money, Jim. Make a lot he of signed, money now. He signed two really nice contracts in his career. He made a nice little piece of coin. So you can make, you can have a nice living being Quentin Jammer. You know, don't look down on Quentin Jammer. Quentin Jammer is not need your pity. I mean, I've been doing, you know, again, I've been doing a lot of free agency stuff, and it amazes me. How guys like you know Olivier Vernon, you know, for example, gets paid as much as Von Miller, and he's not even close to Von Miller. No, you know, no, come on, people, really. But that's how much he's getting paid, though. So I'm just, uh, yeah, which is that's of course a different sort of that's for agency yeah. versus you know the the draft. But Amari uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's out there. We we have lots of cornerbacks in this class that are going to be successful cornerbacks. What we don't have is any guys that that are all pro guys. You know. Now, of course, that's suspect because again, the combine isn't here yet. Just based on the guys that tested, 
at the Senior Bowl and, you know, all those other sort of areas. None of those guys. Now, some of them, you know, guys like Russell Douglas, for example, you know, yeah, he hit a, a good area where if you test well as an athlete, he's, you know, there's their chance to the starter, but he didn't quite hit that level that he needed to hit to, to be, you know, all pro uh, player, if you will, you know. So even though he has really long arms and he has, like Brian Allen is like, you know, Brian Allen from Utah is who I'm talking about. Um, he's the guy that has like ridiculously long arms. One of, yeah, one of the longer arms cornerbacks in the, in the class, uh, but his production is extremely that was, I think it scares you. Yes. I mean, I don't think he's going to be a full-time starter, but if you get him where I think you might get him in the draft and you have him as, you know, sort of your your dime back or, you know, one of, yeah, basically your fourth corner, I think he's going to have a nice little career, particularly if he goes to some place where they really value his kind of you know, what he looks like, which would be a place like Seattle. Um, I think exactly. he would. <laughs> or Jacksonville. I think he, yeah, Jacksonville, Seattle, right, someplace like that. You know, talk about guys that have six, seven years in the league and make a decent amount of change. A lot of Falcons, you know. Yes, right, also like kind that. of the same thing. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, some but, places will absolutely love him. But, yes, go ahead. My, my, my point, my only point is, is you have people who gravitate towards one thing at cornerback when it should be a collection of things. You're just talking about greatness at the, at the position, um, which is my big, it was like one of the main things I had in terms of Jason Verrett is like, I didn't feel like I was on an Island with Jason Verrett. I just felt like the, the culmination of everything with Jason Verrett was better than the culmination with every other corner, you know, Gilbert and, you know, like Jason Verrett was more productive than Justin Gilbert. He ran as fast as Justin Gilbert, hit a better short show three come than Justin Gilbert. He just didn't, you know, he just wasn't tall. Right. But he was tougher. He was stronger. He showed a higher football IQ. And there was lots of stuff that was there. But I just, and even age-wise, they're pretty much the same age. But the, the, but the big thing to me is I'm tired of this whole, well, so-and-so is the exception. He's not the rule. No. Like, you shouldn't like, oh, well, this guy was – it's like, oh, Russell Wilson is successful. He's the exception, you know, to to you never draft a five foot ten quarterback. I think <laughs> the fact that Russell Wilson was a successful quarterback means that a lot of the things that we put weight in when it comes to quarterback evaluation are wrong, you know, like height and stuff like that. And if you actually did do studies on that, you would see, which I already did anyways, is that there really isn't much of a difference between a guy who's – really short or really tall in terms of outcome and quarterback, you know. So it's it's really just a mindset, a feeling, a, a preference. You know, again, some people like Rocky Road, some people like, you know, like that kind of thing, you know. Then an actual thing, you know, that you have to pay attention to, uh, which I kind of get that at cornerback as well in that there's a lot of really good short corners. It's just that because they're short, people are inherently are not going to value them as highly because of you know, those sort of things, despite the fact that they may be productive and, you know, and other sort of things like that. So um, Jordan Lewis is probably one of the examples of that, where you have lots of people who are like, oh, Jordan Lewis, e- either you like Jordan Lewis as a you know first-round, late-first-round kind of cornerback, or you hate him and you don't want to draft him. You, know, you want him to be day three because 
you know, there's been moments on film where he has issues with certain guys, you know, in certain certain moments on tape that were not as, uh, you know, helpful, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, not as helpful. Well, here's the thing. Didn't get the juices flowing, I guess, you know. Right. Well, here's the thing that, that I come back to, and I guess nickel doesn't exist. I mean, it isn't a separate enough position that you have data because first of all, I mean, they became in the last few years, they've become an actual starting position, 62 point something percent of the snaps nowadays across the NFL. There was a third corner, whatever you want to call it. They, they know there were five years of back to the field. However you want to describe them, you know, on the field that much that, uh, you know, that's a thing now. Uh, the nickel back is no longer a backup. And, Though I know, like I said, there's not enough separation between that position and other defensive back positions for you to actually be able to do defensive back metrics for for nickels. There's things I look for in nickel backs, obviously. And, yeah, they tend to be shorter. They don't have to be short. There are guys who play nickel and play it well who are six feet tall. But generally, they're guys who often end up there because they're five foot nine or five foot ten or five foot eight and a half or whatever it is. Enough to scare people, basically. They don't have enough height, so I'm going to put them there where I'll be less scared. I'm not as afraid because I'm putting you here as opposed to, you know, outside on the left or outside on the right, field boundary, whatever term you, whatever, however you align. And I think that's what a lot of people will, will say. Well, he can play nickel. You know, that's that's the saving grace. People said that about Verrett, too, as you might remember, Jim. <laughs> that, well, he's yeah, going to be a nickel. Yeah, he's going to be a good nickel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know who you are. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, but, again, he hits every single thing. He's super-duper athlete. The only thing is his height. I'm just saying, sometimes you have to use your brain when you're doing metrics. That's all I'm saying. You can't just turn your brain off. Go well. He not didn't hit numbers, so he gone stuck. You can't have that approach. Can't do it. You know, you have to look at the, you have to look at the 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 all the evidence. You know, it's not an exact science yet, anyway. So, um, you're you're at the very least you're looking at a lot of evidence pointing towards one thing, and then you're making a final determination based on that all that evidence. Um, which that's that's probably the biggest issue because I just told you all the things that makes him a successful cornerback, uh, and it's a lot of things. You know, it's not one thing. It's not arm length. And I think that's the, I guess that's the problem. You know, it needs to be just one number, I guess, people to get it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, but that's just the kind of point with cornerback is you can have nickel cornerbacks that have had a lot of success, for example, are guys who have a lot of things in common with safety. You know, they have really good short shoulder cones. They have, you know, those sort of things which are very similar to safety. And if you think of nickel, as a safety-ish kind of position, uh, you know, it's it, it, not exactly the same, but you do have, you know, safeties that come down and, and play nickel at times. Um, so there's that sort of continuity there. Uh, but right. And that's one of the things that people love about Earl Thomas and people love it about Buda Baker, hence the, oh, Buda Baker is Earl Thomas. So I guess we should have it correctly. No, I know. Why do people not know? Well, they don't know. But, yeah, okay. (laughs) 
I don't think he's going to test like Earl, but I think he'll test well. And he didn't produce like Earl Thomas. No. He didn't. It's just not... So for, for people who have forgotten how special Earl Thomas was, Jim, would you like to tell them what Earl Thomas actually looked like from a metrical standpoint? Sure. Uh, well, let me... Okay, Earl Thomas, of course, Ed Reed is right there. Yeah, he was, you know, 5'10", 202 pounds, ran 4'4", 3. Uh, in terms of his, he had 73.19 in terms of uh, solo tackle market share. He had a 90.87 score in interception market share. And he had a 98.47 in pass deflection market share. Buda Baker, Buda Baker, on the other hand, had a 57.88 solo tackle market share score, a 46.38 interception market share score, and a 81.55 pass deflection market share score. So... One of these things is not like the other, as they like to say, um, which is, of course, I mean, even Ed Reed, you know, was 72, solo tackle, 89. That's the funny thing about Ed Reed and Earl Thomas is they're so close, metrically speaking, like very similar solo tackle market share, very similar interception market share. And Ed, the difference is that Ed Reed had 99.9 pass deflection market share when he was at Miami, um, which again is what elite safeties. If you're talking about elite free safeties, the Ed Reeds, the Old Thompsons, you know, those people, um, they were guys who had 98 or higher in terms of pass deflection market share, which is what people don't get. You know, it's not necessarily interceptions. It's not necessarily sure they have to have a certain level of interception. You want them to have a lot, but the big, the big, big thing, the big, like, gotta have it thing was the pass deflection market share, the ability to make plays on the ball because, again, if you're trying to get interceptions and you don't get those interceptions, if you really are a ball hawk, you're going to have a lot of pass deflections. You have a lot of, you know, near interceptions that you just happen to get your hand on and, you know, and disrupt the passer. So, um, but yeah, and of course, you're a good tackler, which is another thing. You know, Ed Reed tackled. These people tackled. Deion Sanders tackled people. You know, they tackle. They're not just, oh, business decision, uh, you know, a terrible tackler. Oh, well, no. They they were a certain level. Uh, it, it makes sense to me why free safeties typically have less solo tackle market share than strong safeties because strong safeties are closer to the ball. They're usually there in run support. Free safeties don't always get as many opportunities to tackle if the defense is, is you know, doing its job. But at the same time, you do have to have a certain level of ability to, to make those tackles, which is the same thing that Earl Thomas and, uh, uh, and Ed Reed had, which is what Buda Baker doesn't have. Buda Baker has more things in common with sort of an average free safety, you know, if, if you think he's a free safety. Um, there's nothing really there that is uh, uh, super-duper uh, – I'm looking for. Like, there's nothing like goes, oh, strong safety at all about his profile. 
but there's nothing that goes, oh, my gosh, this is an elite safety. Or free safety. Except, there's nothing that really... Except that he's yeah, roughly the same size that... Yeah, he's the same size. Earl Thomas exactly. was in his sophomore year <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> at Texas. Uh, people forget that Earl thickened up, uh, you know, <laughs> throughout his career. And as you pointed out, was a bigger dude uh, by the time he actually was measured at the Combine. Then, well, we'll see. We'll see exactly how big Buddha is. But my guess is Buddha's not going to be 202. Oh, no, he's not going to be, yeah, any of that, whatever that stuff is. He's not going to be that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's not the case. Big big difference between, now, if you, if you say, oh, it's Tyron Matthew, they were talking about a different thing because Tyron Matthew was 99 percentile in terms of solo tackle market share when he was uh, at LSU, which... For the Bakers, fifty-seven point eight eight. So he's not that either. No. So I'm not saying right. that Luda Baker is going to be a bad player. I'm just saying that if, if you're saying he's the next elite safety, I would say that statistically speaking, that is not likely. Right. You know. Could be a good player. Yeah. Could be if he tests really well as athlete. If he, uh, you know, if he, if all the things are done well, he could, you know, be a decent free safety. But he ain't a generational safety, so that that's just the that's just the big again the divide, right? And the whole thing of well, you can't predict generational safeties, you know that's just dumb, you know. The draft is a it's a crapshoot, it's like the lottery, you know. You never know. You have to look at the traits. You look at the guys that have the similar traits, and then and then you know there you go, you know. And you just hope hope for the best. That's not how it works in my world, at least. That's not how it works. Oh. Sorry, so, but yeah. So, who comes closest amongst the guys who are in this class, based on well, the work that you do? I mean, yeah. That's tough. That's a really tough question. I mean, the guy. Now, my big. It's funny. Every year this happens, where there's a guy who everybody else is like, he's good, and then I watch the film, and I'm like, eh, eh. and you know. uh like Jamal Adams, right? You know, Jamal Adams, for the most part, had had a really good, you know, productive career at LSU. He had fairly good solo tackle market share. He had really, really high interception market share. Pass collection market share ain't elite, but he did put up all the sort of production areas to say that this is a guy that that's, has potential to be a Pro Bowl, uh, you know, safety, if you will, multiple Pro Bowl kind of guy. I just have misgivings on tape, which I think is more so about, you know, the – he just looked completely different this year for whatever reason. I don't know. I don't know if it was the hype or what, but – or if it was just like, man, you, you could be so good and you're not you're not great, maybe. But, uh, but Jamal Adams is one of those guys who at least has sort of – he hits all the sort of areas for like a Pro Bowl kind of guy. Uh, across the you know, across the board, but doesn't quite have every single thing checked off when it comes to you know a guy like that. Uh, another sort of player, kind of like that. Oh yeah, Josh Jones is, is sort of like that as well. You know, 
really, really high sole tackle market share. Not the highest interception market share, but very decent pass deflection market share. Um, Lee Hooker surprisingly has a lot of hiccups, I guess. <laughs> I don't know the other word to say it. Like he doesn't quite have all the he doesn't have the solo tackle area of Ed Reed, he doesn't or or uh, Earl Thomas. He doesn't have the pass deflection market share of either of those guys. He has the interception market share of those guys, but he doesn't have the pass deflection market share of those guys. Um so even though he has like a lot again, everybody anybody who's seen Hooker loves his ball skills, but he just doesn't quite have the same uh, ability to make tons of plays on the ball as those other guys did when they were, you know, coming out. So, really isn't. I mean, the last I'll check is Tedrick Thompson, because why not? Because he's one of those guys that gets no hype whatsoever. So, <laughs> yeah, and he's he's another interesting guy, because he, he doesn't quite have the solo tackle stuff, but high interception market share, not high pass deflection market share, but close. I mean, he has 96.38. It's not 98 but it's close. Yeah. So he's another guy that as a free safety, there's a lot of things there that could make him, you know, you know, decent from a production standpoint. But for the most part, there isn't any guy who really do. I know it's a cliche term, but at least in this instance, it's not, there's nobody who really checks all the boxes for an elite uh, safety prospect. There's a lot of guys who scored well, so you should expect good things from a lot of these guys, if they test well as athletes. Okay. And same question, going back to the corners, is anybody that stands out based on the work that you've done that you think has the best chance to be not just good, but perhaps even great? Ooh. I mean, again, it's a tough, it's a really tough question because once I get the physical stuff, I'll kind of know that better. There were a lot of guys who passed they passed all the things you wanted. Sidney Jones passed all the things that you that you, that you want. Um, I can really just talk about the guys who had the negatives. Marlon Humphrey, for example, is a guy who didn't hit the pass deflection market share area right. that he needed to hit uh, in terms of uh, all pro guys, even Pro Bowl guys, um, which, was, which was concerning. You know, uh, Lattimore is more so about just kind of eh across the board. He's above average and everything, but there's but he's not great in any one thing. Um, he also only started one year, which I haven't done a lot of stuff in the cornerbacks with that, but I just felt like that would be something to look into. Uh, but yeah, he, he's just sort of... Yeah, he just... Concern. You know, a legitimate concern. Uh, who's the other guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tez Tabor. You know, he's a guy that has a really, really high pass selection market share, uh, 45 solo tackle market share, which is below average. Uh, it's it's Pro Bowl level, I guess. But that's if he tests really well. I mean, I, I'm expecting – that means that I would expect him to have a really, really good day at the Combine. But it's still is concerning that he would have that low of uh, solo tackle market share. And I also put a little bit more into solo tackle market share, considering the way that the game has changed uh, with screens and you know stuff like that. You know, I think there's a little bit more to that number 
now than there was back in the 90s and the 80s uh, in terms of quarterback play. But, yeah, it's a little concerning in terms of you know, that, that sort of uh, stuff. But for the most part, I mean, guys like Trey White, I mean, he, he performed well in every, you know, thing. Uh, Chidobe, oh, yeah, Chidobe Awuzi has the same. I didn't – it's not as bad as Marlon Humphrey, but he – it's funny enough, Chidobe Awuzi tested very similar to Tyron Matthew production-wise. Um, is, is really oh. what – because he had really, really high solo tackle market share. Uh, his past selection market share was Pro Bowl level, but not, like, special. You know, it, it didn't hit the sort of all-pro level stuff, but very similar production pattern um, for him and, uh, and uh, Tyron Matthew. So that's something to think about, I guess, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of that. Yeah. Dory Jackson, he Dory Jackson hit every single thing, but his solo tackle mark share is a lot better than his uh, pass selection mark share. But he hits the threshold, so it's not the at least to me, it's not the biggest thing in the world. He hit all the thresholds for that. Uh, Jordan Lewis did as well. Uh, who's the other, other guy? Another guy who's kind of meh is Tankersley from Clemson, which I'm not gonna say it's a good thing, but there's almost no talk of him at this point. So, um, you know, like there's no like, oh, there's no he's a mid-rounder. coming out on Tinkersley. Yeah, I think everybody agrees he's a mid-rounder. Right, exactly. But he's he's a guy who had suspect and everything, really. So the tackle market share, pass flex market share. He's not as bad as his teammate, uh, you know, that was that was drafted last year. You Mac Alexander do. Yeah. The time, greatest of all time. The <laughs> greatest of all time, Mac Alexander. Yeah. Uh, you know, with those press conferences. He had greatest of all time press conferences, but. <laughs> there isn't that. There isn't that guy in this class, though. Thankfully, there isn't a guy at cornerback who had like 10% also attack of market share and 10 percentile pass selection market share who people were considering as a day two or day one pick. There isn't that. So at least I don't have to make those graphs. So uh, to, to point that out and then have people go, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, and, and, you know, whatever. But um, but for the most part, yeah, there, there are guys who sort of hit sort of every little area. There are suspect guys, as I just mentioned, guys like Ted Tabor. But that, that just limits their overall upside. No, that's all that really does. If they have if they have really good athletic testing, and I'm talking like top ten percentile athletic testing, then there is a chance they have got they got a chance because cornerback is one of those positions uh, where if you if you are a super duper athlete uh, that you will be successful. You may not be Hall of Famer, you may not be great, but you'll have success. You know, at, at that position. Um, but, yeah, but it, it is an interesting group. But the only, again, the last thing I'll just say is with the Woozy, that's the one thing to kind of take from this, I guess, is the Woozy is that guy that people might not be talking enough about or, you know, stuff like that. Because he, he did have very similar uh, pattern to uh, Tyron Matthew. You know, it's just he didn't play at LSU. So, yes. Colorado. Right. But, 
it's now recently become a thing to like the, the Colorado uh, secondary guys. Not to like all the Colorado guys, but at least it's now a thing to like the, like every few weeks I see somebody discovering Arkello Witherspoon or discovering Tedrick Thompson or discovering, discovering one of those guys. Right. For whatever exactly. reason, at this point in the game, but the uh, hey, it's this point in the game, right? You know, I mean, I don't know. I just to, but, but doesn't that put to a lie the whole the reason this guy's market share sucks because he plays with these other really good players? I mean, the the Colorado guys, you know, not that they're perfect in terms of it, but most of those guys did fairly well market share wise, and they're all in the same back defensive backfield. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it can be done. <laughs> it's just a dumb argument with no basis. It's just a thing to point out. I don't know. It's it's like, you know, I have all this data, right? And it's a lot of data. It's like 6,000 data points. And because you cherry pick one guy and you go, see, he's not successful. So all this stuff is all, it's all BS. That's not how this works, man. Like, <laughs> You know, like, uh, yeah, there are players who hit all these numbers and were not very good players. Uh, now, of course, they were great athletes. Like, there were other sort of things to kind of add to that. But it still doesn't change the fact that every single great player hit these thresholds, hit these numbers. Um, so I just don't – It's in general, I just don't get the sort of uh, – and, yeah, it is. yeah, it is complex. And, yeah, there is a lot of information. Yeah, it is a lot of stuff. But – at the same time, I just never really got the sort of it, – it's the Ruben Foster thing. Like, once I finally start making my graphs, which will make fun of Ruben Foster, I will have tons of people in my comments saying, he Ooh. played at Alabama. It's one of the best defenses in the history college of football humanity. history. Yes. Right, yeah. That's why his, his production wasn't good. That's why. He's gonna and then you're great. going to just simply bring up Ray Lewis, I'm assuming, at that point and drop the mic. <laughs> I can do that, but it's just a dumb argument because it just get, flies in the face of logic, which is that if you are on a college, if you're not on the NFL team, even if it was in a, like even if every single player on this NFL team was a NFL caliber player, let's just say that. Let's say that Alabama's defense was an NFL defense. It had NFL defensive linemen. It had NFL defensive ends. It had NFL cornerbacks. It had NFL safeties. Every single aspect of this defense was NFL. Even in those scenarios, that just means that Ruben Foster is an average NFL linebacker. Because Ray Lewis, tremendously productive in the NFL, Luke Keekley, tremendously productive in the NFL, Brian, I like tremendously productive in the NFL. Like, these are guys who went to the NFL with NFL caliber stuff around them and still produced at an extremely high level. Um, so the whole argument that, oh, well, he's on this team and or the scheme, you know, again, the whole schemey argument, oh, the scheme prevented him from being successful. Once you take him out of that scheme and put him in this other scheme, he's going to be great. I just don't buy that stuff, man. And, uh, and again, it's not to say that Ruben Foster is going to be a bad linebacker. It's just He's not a top five linebacker, you know. Well, how does he compare even to guys like Zoma? He doesn't compare at all. I mean, Zoma was 81. He was about 81 in solo tackle market share. 
Uh, Ruben Foster is, because it changes every week, it was really low, and then it moved back a bit because he heard my criticisms. He's 71 right now. Okay. And uh, so is Heckle Market Share, which is not bad. It is above average at the position. But every single multiple Pro Bowl linebacker, the Jonathan Vilmas, you know, the Derek Thomases, were 77 or higher. If you're talking about Patrick Willis and those people, the Barr Bowman, the Brian Erlachers, Levante David, the, the linebackers that we think he is, those guys were 91% or higher. And <laughs> in particular, Luke Keekley was 99.99 in terms of the solo tackle market share. He ain't catching them. And Ray Lewis was about 97.89. So it's not comparable. You can't do it. Can't do it, though. Can't compare Ruben Foster to these players. You know, can you compare him to Brian Cushing? Yeah. You can compare Ruben Foster to Brian Cushing if you want. You know, but you can't compare him to multiple all pro players or Patrick Willis or any of the other guys. So, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. <sighs> I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, it's, we've always we talked about this, how this is where the quote-unquote just watch the tape people sometimes get themselves in trouble. We always t- talk about context. They use context as an out. You know, well, the context is there's so many other players who are so good and they make so many tackles that there's no tackles left, blah, blah, blah. And what they're forgetting is to employ context as well. He's got this tremendous, wall of really talented defensive linemen that helped to keep him clean in a way that some of the other guys you named, with the exception of guys like Ray Lewis, didn't have. Erlacher didn't have anybody who vaguely resembled Jonathan Allen or the various other mammoth five stars that, (laughs) like, he was always the best player on the field for his team, probably on offense and defense, uh, depending on where he was aligned. And got it done. And then, as you pointed out, guys like Vilma and, and Ray Lewis and some of these other players who played with tremendous, you know, played with tremendous talent around them, managed to get their tackles as well. So it's clearly possible to do it, you know, it, no matter what the circumstances are. And since every great player has managed it, if someone's a Why truly great player, they find a way to do it. Why hasn't he? That's my big question. Right. Why has he right. not done that? Because every other great player did that. Um, I mean, every player objectively, if I was to say, do you think Brian or like it was a pretty good linebacker, people would go, yeah, he was. You know, Patrick Willis, yeah. You know, Ray Willis, yeah. You know, so uh, I just I just don't understand the sort of uh, – pass that we give to Ruben Foster just because he went to Alabama. It's similar to what happened with, uh, you know, the Ohio State linebacker last year. Uh, oh, was are you talking name? about um, the, the, the the little undersized one, or are you talking about... Uh, yeah, yeah, the undersized... Uh, Darren, Darren Lee? About Darren yeah, Lee. Darren Lee. Yeah, D- yeah, Darren Lee. It was that sort of thing where I was telling people this, and they were going, well, Ohio State, great defense. And I'm like, no, who cares? <laughs> Then they go, well, T.J. Mosley, you know, what was his market share? And I go, 94.13. Really? Wow. I'm surprised that 
he was that productive and that come on. <laughs> just stop. Just stop. Like you have to listen to what I am saying. And all I am saying is that Ruben Foster, for all intents and purposes, is going to be a NFL linebacker. He's going to have an right. NFL start, he's gonna do all that stuff. I have right. issues on tape, which I do get into, but people don't seem to listen to you know, they don't like my I don't know. They don't. They don't look at my tape stuff. So whatever. So I'm just going to focus on the data stuff, I guess. So, right. You know, well, when it comes I get to upset with the with the with the Patrick Willis thing, and I wonder how much Patrick Willis they've actually watched. Patrick Willis was a monster in the run game, who came down and smacked into centers and guards and buckled their knees. He threw them aside and oh. made tackles in the hole repeatedly, yeah. often. But. Ruben Foster is a missile that runs very fast to a place. I mean, all I see Ruben Foster doing is running really, really fast and hitting the running back with momentum, um, but not hitting the run, like not stopping, loading his hips, and then firing into that, that you know, running back. I don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of running really, really fast and then hitting, you know, a lot of momentum sort of stuff, and also leaving his feet as well, uh, which, which is rarely a good idea. Like, I, don't, I don't like that. In terms of linebackers. Uh, you know, my my biggest issue with Lillard is I just don't see a guy who really does a very good job of, of – one thing is just uh, anticipation and vision. I mean, he has okay vision, but he doesn't have that next-level – you know, seeing a play happen and then, get, you know, basically putting himself so like he knows exactly what's happening and then, he, you know, puts himself in a position to make whatever play is there. There's not a lot of that. Now, some of that's coaching. Again, I'm putting context to it, but a lot of people make the argument, well, it's coaching. He's coached to stay in a spot and do his thing, which is cool and everything. But a lot of great players, sure, they do that, and then they go, I got you, coach. I know exactly what this is. You know, I'm Ray Lewis. You can trust me. You know, you know what I'm saying. I'm Patrick Willis. You can trust me. Um, and and as you just said, you know, how often do people watch Patrick Willis? Well, there is Patrick Willis tape, but I don't think they saw it. You know, I'm not talking about NFL. I'm talking about college. Because my big thing uh, that I've been doing a lot of is going back and just watching players in college that were historically great players, because. Again, that's the point. You're you're trying to figure out what did that player look like in college to project. I mean, sure, you're going to learn things from the NFL level. If you study the NFL, you can look for the sort of things that make great NFL players, and that that's great and everything. But at the same time, you're trying to also figure out what does that look like at the college level. You know, what does this look like at the college level uh, in terms of a great player who is in this level? So, but in but again, in general, it's a pretty easy debate. But nobody believes me. It's just that Reuben Foster is a productive player. He's not an elite productive player. Uh, and as much as people want to do the whole, well, you know, your stuff's interesting. You know, sounds cool. Uh, that's cool. You know, or, or like, oh, we'll see what happens. Another thing I get a lot. It's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, sure, I can't predict every single thing, but at the very least I can say 
that this guy has a 0% chance of being a really, really special linebacker, so why are we even considering him as a top 10 or top 5 player? Especially since he's not even going to do anything at the combine, which is going to put me in a bind because how am I supposed to project this guy now when all I have is kind of eh, production and, you know, he hasn't even done any athletic stuff. So how am I supposed to really project this guy if I don't even have the stuff to, to help in that projection of him, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, I, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's just my big thing is elite linebackers, despite what they say, are players who were extremely productive in terms of solo tackle market share, and Ruben Foster has not done that. Um, right, and, and he never will that. because that's it. Right, because this is right. it. He never will because right. this is it. This is the final season. That's it. Yeah. Right, um, and, and the other thing out, I would say, to yeah. Well, the last thing I would say is that the thing about data, which is, I think, what which makes it a little bit more powerful than film at times is that I'm comparing every single game that this player played. You know, like the data is taking into account the Kentucky game and the Tennessee game and every single game that this guy played. It's taking into account all those games. You could find a game and you watch, which I think is a big part of data, is if you if you see a player on tape and you really like him and you go, wow, I saw this one game and he was great, you go back and you watch the tape. You watch another game and you go, oh, okay, I didn't see this in the first game I saw, you know, of the of this player. Uh, I didn't see, I didn't catch this flaw, you know. So I'm just saying that a lot of times data just gives you that perspective of, okay, this guy is an elite productive. Let me see why that is. And I always have, I kind of have an idea why that is with Ruben Foster, but I just think that people, because of the, not really limited, but yeah, limitations. I mean, if you only watch four games of a guy and they could all be his best games, you're going to have a very skewed view about what his overall game is, you know. Right, or they could be his worst games, or he could have, you could be fighting through a bad ankle. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen if you only watch three or four games. Exactly. Whereas data takes into account all those games, every single one of them, for the most part. So, um, so it kind of gives you that perspective as well uh, in terms of those sort of things. But, again, I, I don't know. And I haven't done that chart yet. I mean, I'm probably going to do that after the combine, really, because what else am I going to talk about with Ruth Foster? I'm not going to have any athletic data. I'm just going to have height and weight data. That's about it. So. Right. <laughs> and that's, I was going to say, that's one of the things that, that sort of, when a guy truly is elite, he usually wants to show that. I mean, if you're Miles Garrett and you want people to know that you're Miles Garrett, you show up and you be Miles Garrett. Oh, definitely. And as and as my coaches used to say, you leave no doubt. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there's a competitiveness about it. I mean, uh, the best example, you know, and I went back and did Ezekiel Elliott's uh, profile was that he didn't do the short shell and three cone, but he did hit every number, like he at least had one number that was elite level speed for, uh, you know, a running back. That coupled with his production. So even though I didn't have everything to really project Ezekiel Elliott, I at least had enough stuff to feel comfortable on top of film, of course. I mean, you know, you had to fall back on film. But he at least did enough stuff to, to like, you know, say, hey, look look at me, you know, type of thing. 
um, versus a guy like Trent Richardson who uh, did do the Churchill three dunk, uh, but also had some negatives in terms of arm length and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of guys at this combine like Corey Davis and stuff like that that are rumored to not do anything at the combine. And I just, um, I mean, sure they're going to do stuff at the pro day. At least I hope they do stuff at the pro day. Uh, but I just had the feeling that I don't really, my general thing with, with players like that is I don't really care how good you are or how much I like you. I still want that, you know, confirm, you know, you know, I want to verify some things, you know, like that at the very least, that's what I want to do. You know, when I'm trying to project a guy, I kind of want to know, you know, um, can I verify some of the stuff that I I think that you are, you know, when it comes to my mind, there's only two reasons for a guy who's healthy not to do whatever. One is the whole thought that you can, quote, unquote, only hurt yourself, which, you know, always fills me with a certain <laughs> sense of, well, wait a second now. What, 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 why, why would that be true? People like to say that. Well, you can only hurt yourself. Well, you mean if you don't do well, which means <laughs> the second point, you weren't going to do as well as people thought you were going to do would be the second point. If you were going to come, if you were going to test like Brian Erlacher, you would want the whole world to see you test like Brian Erlacher. You would not want people to not see that. Yeah, it's like Treadwell. You would want the world to know. You know, Treadwell was going to run like four seven, you know, at the combine, and that would not have been a good thing. So he decided to do this pro day, you know, uh, where, where there's that sort of benefit. So Justin Gilbert, Ran the, you know, ran the, you know, ran the forty, then went to his pro day and then put up the four three nine for troll and you know, seven uh, two three count. So right. yeah, yes, there's, there's the a bit of that as well, which is why when people don't do those things, I usually freak out because I'm like, you know, wait, what's going on? <laughs> you know, like what's wrong? <laughs> you know, like what what are you not going to do that well? I mean, and, and besides that, I mean, you can always improve um, on these times. So I, I just have it, – it's like Joey Bosa-ish where, you know, he didn't really run that fast. So he went to his pro day and then ran a little bit faster. Uh, but, again, you can only improve on the numbers, you know, from – especially, you know, verticals and stuff like that. I mean, there's things that you can you can improve upon that I think can be legit when you're trying to project a guy uh, at the at the pro day. But – at the same time, you just want them doing everything. You know, you want to see them do everything um, and not have to rely on teams who are inherently going to report things that are inaccurate or favor that player, uh, which is another – it's the other issue I have with, with the way that some teams approach analytics is that analysts shouldn't just be confirmation bias, which a lot of teams kind of see it as, you know. I really like this safety, so I'm going to make sure the numbers look good to get this safety, which is not how you should be approaching analytics. You should be letting the data speak for itself instead of skewing the data to make them look good so you draft them, you know. But, again, that's just another sort of issue, I guess, with with data. It's It's why people make mistakes with data. What do you think is the most common data mistake? in your mind that people make? Not enough sample size. Hmm. You know, uh, guys do these studies. 
like there was a recent one where he's like, I'm looking at production at wide receiver. I'm like, oh, okay. But what, what do you got? And then they have 35 wide receivers in, in the sample. That's not a, that's not enough. I'm sorry. Like, uh, and, and especially since, again, it, with the data that I use, like take wide receivers. My wide receiver set has about 2,700 plus wide receivers in it, uh, mainly because that's how many. That's that's just how many there are. It includes the successful players. It includes the not successful players. Why? Right. Because you want to know. Like, you, you can't just put all the successful players and go, "Well, they hit these numbers." you still want to know, okay, what are the risks associated with hitting these numbers? There are going to be wide receivers who have tremendously productive seasons and don't really become much at the NFL level. Uh, You're going to have players who have, you know, and again, it's also figuring out what that actual average is at that level of competition. Um, So essentially all I'm trying to say is, is I think the biggest issue is sample size because people – they basically and and I get why the sample was low because this is a lot of work. It took me four years to get my wide receiver data to nineteen sixty nine That's how long it took to to really and to double check and to make sure that there wasn't any mistakes and make sure there wasn't any double take you know like to to do all that took that long. It's easier to just get thirty five players and knock that out in a day you know and do that. But you're not – it's just not a large enough sample size to account for margin of error. It's just not a large enough sample size to really be effective in predicting and really, again, finding out the range of possibilities when it comes to players. And I just think that that's a big – it's a big issue I have with a lot of these uh, these data stuff that people do, uh, which is why, like, with high school – like, just for example, you know, the high school quarterback data that I, I've been messing around with um, – it has 6,000-plus data points in it. I still don't feel very good about it because it only goes back to 2004. It's still a large enough sample size to to feel comfortable with it, to know that there isn't, like, to at least make some conclusions from it, which is that above-average uh, productive high school players are going to be better players at the college level. But it's not to the level where I value that more than the – the collegiate quarterback data, which goes all the way back to 1958. You know, I just feel a little bit more comfortable with the fact that that data has, well, one, it has more data points, but two, it has that, that range of possibilities, the, you know, the sort of like I'm confirming, like I confirmed my theory in the 50s, I confirmed it in the 60s, I confirmed it in the 70s, the 80s and 90s, whatever. Like the theory that I'm trying to get you to buy into has been proven time and time and time and time after again. Whereas the high school stuff is stuff where there is sort of a blind spot because I don't have that much. Like I don't have Tom Brady's high school numbers. I don't have Drew Brees' high school numbers. I probably never will, you know, well, hopefully not. But uh, but at the very least, I that's just kind of my – issue is sample size is, is really important when it comes to making sure the accuracy of your numbers and how much of a how much the variability of it there could be and a lot of data stuff now that comes out is very limited in terms of sample size limited to the point where you shouldn't even be doing an article about it you know because there isn't enough data to really 
the conclusions that you're making or that you're trying to make or that you're trying to wink at people about are just, there's not enough data there to really make that wink, you know, even. So I, I, that's just, I don't know, that's just my big issue with in terms of mistakes with data in sample size. Got it. Moving, we talked linebacker, I guess, a little bit just because of Foster, but there are some other linebackers who are going to hit the combine. Uh, doing what you do, how do they stack up metrically? Well, for the most part, uh, the I'll just say the guys who did really, you know, really well in terms of uh, production stuff. Uh, Anthony Walker Jr. from Northwestern did well production-wise. Uh, Blair Brown from Ohio did well. Uh, Chuck Clark from Virginia Tech he performed well. Jalen Rees Maven, who is a guy that I actually want to go back and watch some more film of, but he he did relatively well. Jayon Brown from UCLA did well. Raekwon McMillan did well, but again, this wasn't last year. This was the year before uh, last year, 2015. Uh, Zach Cunningham did very well. Actually, he was the best, actually. He hit the sort of uh, special linebacker area. Uh, and that's about, at least at the guys at the combine, those are all the guys. So like a handful of guys hit areas where uh, the Pro Bowl uh, and All-Pro uh, area is possible based on their solo tackle market share. That just comes down to, uh, you know, physical testing, you know, how big they are, uh, how fast they are, explosiveness, things like that. Got it. Got it. So let's see if we have uh, any news to impart as we move on to the defensive line class. There's a fair amount of excitement about the the exterior. I mean, there's a couple of interior guys that people talk about, but mostly people are excited about the edge class, the quote-unquote edge class, defensive ends, three, four outside linebackers. And like I said, there's a couple of guys that people are excited about just doing, once again, going through the defensive line players. And based on what you do, how do they stack up? Uh, who are the guys that look like perhaps future standouts? And then who might be of concern? Right. Well, the guys who stand out the most uh, in terms of, you know, every, you know, like production and stuff uh, would be Charles Harris from Missouri. He's definitely one of those guys. Dwayne Smoot, uh, Demarcus Walker, Derek Barnett, uh, Jordan Willis, Miles Garrett, Takers McKinley. T.J. Watt, and Vince Beagle. So those are all the guys that hit the uh, sort of area. And the last guy, I still consider him to be an edge. Uh, it's Hassan Reddick. Uh, I know people have been inside linebacker crazy with him, but um, well, he also funny. sort of... They, they, played, they played Von Miller at Mike Linebacker in the senior bowl, but you didn't suddenly see people projecting him to Mike Linebacker in the NFL. Uh, you know, and I haven't run the. I, mean, I kind of did with Anthony Barr. Anthony Barr, when I, as a edge player, he wasn't that bad. 
as a linebacker, he was sort of uh, kind of Miles Jackish, actually, but better uh, in terms of, you know, production sort of stuff like that, in terms of like a strong side linebacker type. Uh, I think that'll be similar to Reddick, but I don't think he'll be like a, again, a, a, speci- a very special, special linebacker guy. He just will be that sort of strong linebacker in the mold of, uh, you know, all those other sort of uh, strong side linebacker types, if you will, that kind of, that people say are linebackers, but they're really not, I guess. But, um, but yeah, the edge class, for the most part, is guys like Charles Harris and, you know, all those other sort of guys that I that I mentioned. Uh, the only guys in there that I'm like, eh, on is like Vince Beagle. I'm not really the biggest fan, T.J. Watt. As much as uh, you know, NDT scouting doesn't like me about that. I I think he's okay. I think TJ Watt is very Shalik Calhounish, as I keep saying. Um, TJ Watt is very lucky that his last name is Watt. I think is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> if he yeah, was we'll TJ Wyatt, you know, you slap an extra letter in there, and everyone would be talking about how he might be a fifth round steal. Yeah, exactly. But. He was productive, you know, in terms of that defense. A lot, he had a lot of injuries that happened, of course, but at the very least, uh, you know, there there are uh, positives there in terms of uh, those sort of things. But for the most, like, if you're saying, like, okay, who who are the guys? Who are the guys that care about Charles Harris, of course, Miles Garrett, Demarcus Walker. Um, yeah, I already mentioned Miles Garrett. Of course, Takers McKinley are kind of the big, big guys that I would say people should be paying the most attention to, attention to, um, depending on how they do at the combine. But for the most part, I mean, it's a solid edge class. There's guys that are there that I don't even know why they're there. Guys like Brian Cox Jr., guys like uh, Chris Wormley, you know, Garrett Sickles. You know, uh, you know, Peta from Utah. You know, there there are some guys that are Tayshon Bauer, which even in Tayshon Bauer's LSU profile, it specifically says part time. You know, he's a part time edge rusher. You know, so uh, again, they felt like a part time edge rusher at LSU is more deserving than Carter Schultz. So it tells you something about the NFL. Um, but yeah. Uh, I would say that, yeah, those are the big guys uh, in terms of uh, that stuff. The two, the two guys I think have the most, again, Miles Garrett and McKinley are guys that I expect big-time combine you know, performances from. Um, and Charles Harris to a certain extent as well. So, I mean, those are the three that I think will hit, I expect to hit every single thing and to shoot up draft boards or whatever. You know, Miles Garrett's are, you can't, he, Miles Garrett has, Nowhere to go but down, actually. Uh, so I don't think he's going to pull a Demontre more, but I do, uh, as a, you know, when you're being mocked number one overall, you, you don't have anywhere else to go, I guess, if you, you know, in terms of mountains to climb, I guess. Okay. And the interior, uh, where you'll find Montrevious Adams and Allen, and depending upon who you ask, Possibly DeMarcus Walker or not. 
and possibly Solomon Thomas or not. There's a nice little schism and you know, just just how small a player can be and still survive on the interior. But as I like to point out, I mean, find me Samuel Adams. Where's Vince Wilfork? Where's Casey Hampton? Where's the 360, 370-pounders? They're an endangered species. I'm, I, I well, think we might – well, whatever. I mean, you'll tell me, but who do you see, I what do you know. see, and how do they project in terms of the interior? I don't know where they are. They're gone. They don't <laughs> exist anymore. They're, they're like the dinosaur, you know? They're gone. Um, oh, hello, Nada. I hope we – The spread offenses <laughs> have destroyed. They've taken them out. Uh, if you will, uh, you know, I don't really think there's an elite. Again, I think there's a lot of really good three techs in this class. I think that's kind of where the heart of the class is: is three techniques, not but, so much five techniques. So, but well, that's where people guys, are projecting people like, uh, or many people are projecting guys like McDowell, uh, possibly Colin Bevins. I don't know. Uh, I mean. People, it's a misconception. It's like, you know, offensive linemen grab McDowell. Like, they basically get, you know, he gets double teamed. He gets fistful of jerseys. He doesn't, can't really do much of anything because the offensive lineman has complete leverage control over him. And yet people go, wow, they didn't move him. You know, great job. Uh, come on, man. And then, the, then there's also the time where he does get moved. He gets finished uh, violently. Um and of course, the spin move to dirt, or the the speed move, speed rush move to dirt, which is another Link McDowell uh, move, the swim move to dirt, so stuff like that. But um, I, you know, I don't. I mean, guys, guys that, that that should do well. My big thing when it comes to, you know, Justin Smith was a guy coming out that was. You know, about six four, two seventy seven ish, uh, and you know was one of the better. You know, and I'm talking about Justin Smith, the kind of portly guy at SF. I'm talking about the Bengals, Justin Smith. You know that guy. Um, you know, there's guys that I think, yeah, they, they don't quite have the size yet to be full time three tech guys. You know, guys like uh, uh, Solomon. You know, not Tom, yeah, Solomon Thomas and Jonathan Allen. But I do think that they have that. They're in that weight range where the the you shouldn't worry about. Like, yeah, it's a worry thing, but you've seen what they can do on film. It's just a matter of putting 10 more pounds on them, you know, or 20 more pounds on them. Um, right. And they've shown that they can be really productive inside uh, and college. So there, there's stuff there, I guess. But, yeah, the guys that were, like, really, really productive uh, inside, one guy that I was surprised to see, is David Godshock from LSU. Now, he's had a lot of arrests, multiple arrests, actually, in his career, uh, lots of stuff like that, but for the most part, he's put up relatively solid numbers across the board. So he's kind of a guy that I think is not really slept on, but nobody talks about him, so I guess he could say that. Um, yeah, I would say that we should be talking about David Gottschalk more than Mon Adams at this point, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Right. Um, right. Uh, Jill Johnson, of course, guy that I was on, you know, a long time ago. But long time people, ago, and now people are discovering him. Don't, people don't, you know, they forget, they don't listen. But he's definitely going to be productive. His only big issue is age. 
he's like right at the bubble of multiple all pro guys, but again, cross the board production, really, really uh, decent. Jonathan Allen is also fairly productive cross the board. Uh, highest uh, sort of stuff is sack market share, but very similar profile to Tyson Alawala. I'm not saying Jonathan Allen is going to be Tyson Alawala, but some of the there is same concern. things that I heard people tell me made them think that Tyson Alawala was going to be, you know, whatever he's going to be was to at least to some extent based on some of the same reasons I hear people giving for for Allen. Exactly. So that's the concern. That's the only concern. Um, I don't think he's going to have elite heights, which, again, people get onto me this a lot, but consistently dominant pass rushers, guys that can have 10-year, 12-year, 15-year careers are typically taller than their counterparts. Because as they get older, the length stays the same, I guess. I don't know how to, you know, but that's, you know, Julius Peppers had 38-inch arm length. And he still has 38-inch arm length. So that, that is still something to, um, I don't know, admire or think about when it comes to that, that type of a player. I don't think any of the guys in the class are going to be like that. But that's just, that's just one sort of height negative, which is that most 3-4 defensive ends are typically 6-4 or higher. And Jonathan Allen, I don't think it's going to be 6-4. I think it's going to be like 6-3, 6-2. So it's a minor thing, but it's still – a thing to kind of criticize, I guess, from a measurable standpoint. And we'll find out, you know, what's measurable. Um, Malik McDowell, again, was, was productive, but I just have issues, as I already told you before, Bill, a lot of my issues with his production is that a lot of the things that really helps him out is the fact that he's really young. He played a really tough schedule, one of the tougher schedules in college football because Michigan State played uh, a lot of, you know, they played Ohio State, they played Michigan, like they played a lot of tough. It was a, one of the tougher schedules in college football, which I'm not excusing him for his issues, but he did play a tough schedule. Uh, and Michigan State did only have 11 sacks. So when you have one and a half sacks and you divide that by 11, it's better, you know, than say 30 sacks. So even though he's just kind of odd in terms of that, but he, but he did. Again, age and all that other kind of stuff is really what's helping him, but I'm, I'm really suspect about him because of those types of things. I kind of want to see a really good combine. Otherwise, I'm going to cash in my chips and say goodbye, I guess. Sort of. Uh, of course, Solomon Thomas was, was really productive. Kendall Smart hit pretty high areas of, of production as well. And which is a good thing to mention is that even despite the, the strength of schedule, he tested really well. So his production is at a level where even though he played a lower level uh, competition, he still was super, super cute. Like he was productive at a level where the, he was so productive that it didn't hurt his overall score. Uh, so that's a positive, at least to me. So Tanzel Spar is another one of the guys that tested well from that. Of course, Charles people, Walker. People talk about Tulane, like it's a B league in Greece or something. I mean, well, I, I, I know it's not Alabama it's or not USC Texas, or Ohio State. I mean, the weakest <laughs> schedule in college football from last year was Texas El Paso. They played the weakest schedule in college football, but it's still lower. And again, I'm just saying this because I've added. It's just another layer of stuff, like anything else. I mean, I still look at market share. 
you know, still the tackle market share. I still look at SAC market share. I still look at TFL market share. I just add the layer of strength of schedule to give me some perspective on how productive they were for the schedule that they played. Long right. I get that. Stress. It's like Jared Allen that. played, played, you know, lower, like really lower level division, but he also was 99, 99, 99 in every single production metric. <laughs> right. So when that happens, setting the, the, the standard the for a guy from that standard. level. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For for an all pro guy, you want to hit that area. It's like with successful wide receivers from, like the easier way to explain this is, is successful wide receivers from the FCS level are typically thirty percent market share. So this is like st- bottom end starter projection. At the FCS level, it's about forty percent. And then if you're talking like special 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 players like Andre Reid and Terrell Owen and you know all these other guys, they were even higher than that. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, market share protection. So it's just something to look right. at to think about when you're trying to project a guy from uh, from that low level is how productive were they at, how productive were they, how do you measure that, and you just have to compare them to the other guys and, and how they were. Like, there's a difference. So I, I try to take into account that. You know, I don't want to – like, sure, he played at Tulane, but if he was, like, eh, productive at Tulane, we'd be talking differently <laughs> about him long-term but he was right. really productive at some point. So that's all I'm so, Like Matt Forte. You know. Was Cecil Schwartz anywhere in your in your stuff? I mean, obviously, there's not a lot of yeah, three yeah. wide receivers. Okay. Where where was he in terms of his numbers? But, you know, and there's a Garcon or a Schwartz or whatever. I like to yeah. see what they do. Yeah, Garcon. Yeah, yeah, Garcon was uh, about fifty-six percent. Cecil Shorts okay. was. Oh yeah, this is Marvin. Yeah, he was. Um, he, 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 yeah, he was forty-five uh, percent. So. Okay. So Garcon was ultra productive, <laughs> yes, and then Schwartz was, you know, really good, but no, nowhere close to Garcon. Very good. I mean, the difference between them and Garcon was really just athletic ability. I mean, Cecil Schwartz was a, a really right. good athlete in his own right. You know, four zero seven short shell, six five three count, a very good slot receiver traits, if you will, athletically speaking. Uh, right. Pierre Garcon. Was four three speed was super duper like he was combine blowing it up whatever term you want to use was that yes so that he won really the he difference. won the combine yeah, yeah. he won <laughs> yeah yeah uh, he was he was and his I mean I don't know if you want to look at his college tape but he was kind of a man amongst boys in college those poor deep re- those corners from you know assumption and but um. Uh, uh, Baldwin Wallace, or whatever they had, they had no answers. <laughs> they, had no, they had no answers uh, for, uh, for Mr. Garcon. Uh, I was working for CDS at the time when Garcon was coming out, and I mean, he was our, uh, you know, offensive player of the year two years in a row at the Division Three level, and you know, he like, just like I said, this tape was comical. Yeah, just comical. I mean, they would have. 
I mean, obviously they knew who he was. <laughs> they would do everything they could. They'd, you know, they'd put their best guy on him. They would give help over the top. They'd have people undercut, whatever, everything. And they'd think nothing. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. It was all for naught. <laughs> and I guess that's what you need. I mean, when you're coming from that level, you need a guy who's just this, you know, comically unstoppable, you know, the term people used to use was mossing. You know, he was mossing people. That's what he was doing. They got mossed, or garçoned, I guess, in this case. Which, I guess, almost literally is to be sunned, as people like to say, because garçon doesn't mean boy. Okay, moving through. Um, obviously, all the women don't have stats in terms of production. People have tried to create stats for offensive linemen, you know, giving them a like when they, like when they recover and prevent or whatever a uh, almost like a I can't remember the term right someone used, but basically a prevention of a pressure or prevention of a sack or prevention of a you know it doesn't really work, but people are trying to create stats for offensive linemen. Pancakes get thrown around. Um, some people have tried to give them you know production for. Built, opening a larger-than-normal hole or whatever in, a, in the run game. But like I said, none of that stuff is really taken hold, and it's almost impossible to really explain your methodology when you're trying to do those things. Uh, you said you look at starts. What do you look at for unemployment? Besides, I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly what you said, even. Oh, well, when it comes to offensive linemen, my big thing actually is uh, uh, athleticism sort of stuff, and heights and physical stuff. The guy who does the starts is uh, something I've been kind of getting into is because is, it makes sense. I mean, you want a guy who starts um, – yeah, you want a guy who's who, you know, all the opportunities he had to start, he started because, I mean, it, the NFL, right? I mean, if the guy doesn't get – you know, if the guy doesn't start, uh, then you kind of have questions. But for the most part, it's that most of my offensive line stuff is really just focused on uh, athleticism and uh, height, weight sort of traits. So until we get actual factuals on height, weight, and actual athletic ability, there's not much you can you can do. <laughs> so. Well, these are, I mean, these are the, I mean, these are the basics. Uh, you know, age-wise, you want them to be at least 23.5. Um, since 1996, every single all-pro offensive tackle was at least 23.5 on draft day. I have had people go, well, you know, what if they were really productive at a young age? But then we get into that whole issue. Remember, Bill, we get into that issue of well, how do you measure offensive line, you know, production. Uh, but still, I mean, that that's just sort of the standard, I guess, the the, the threshold for, for age. Uh, Height-wise, six foot six or taller is where 75% of multiple all-pro uh, offensive tackles are. So the Jonathan Ogdas, you know, all those guys, the Joe Thomases, all those players were in that area. Guys who didn't quite hit that area were Jason Peters and stuff like that, but super-duper athletes. Um, in terms of that position. The big thing that I was surprised about when it came to offensive linemen is that the speed score was like the biggest thing at that position. And sure, you needed to be explosive, and yeah, you needed to be flexible, 
But when it came to all-pro players, 100% of, of the multiple all-pro offensive tackles since 1996 had at least an 85.87 speed score or better. And this is like, you know, everybody, you know, Walter and, you know, every single guy had a really, really high speed score uh, for that position. So that's been one of the big things. Uh, but for the most part, you just, I mean, you're just looking for a combination of traits. You're looking for guys who, uh, you know, even if they don't run fast, they have some explosiveness traits. Uh, you know, it, it's similar, again, the scheme that you're in. You are a ZBS tackle. You want guys that are flexible and you want guys that are explosive. If you're a man system, you want guys that are flexible and you want guys that are fast, uh, if you will. But for the most part, the bi- the big indicator uh, for – offensive line and was speed so but you still need some flexibility you still need some explosiveness but speed was a big um, thing and it actually might get people fired but um, but that's <laughs> but that's just the big thing when it came to finding all pro guys was was that one particular metric which offensive and, line coaches hate right so right so when you when you talk about speed score for those who have never run into the term before, aren't sure what you mean by speed score. Explain speed score and how it's actually generated. Well, all speed score is is you are taking a prospect's mass density. You're, so you're taking the weight and you're dividing it by the height to get how dense they are. And then you are met. Your then you, of course you did an average forty at the position and for mass density. And then you measure the difference between – so basically it's like an expected 40. A guy this size should run this fast, if you will. And then you see right. – and then the score basically tells you that difference, if you will, like how much faster they ran compared to the average, um, if you will. And that that's basically what a speed score is out of 100. So if you – Score 85.67, you're obviously faster than a guy who run, you know, that ran a 56.27. And in general, it just makes sense in terms of, you know, basic physics that if you have a man that's 330 pounds and runs a 5-flat 40, that's more impressive than a man that is 300 pounds and runs a 5-flat 40. So, I mean, you know, one guy is 30 pounds heavier and he ran the same speed. So that's also kind of where the force player stuff kind of happened and, you know, started to go. It's like, oh, force generated, you know, stuff like that. But I don't know. But when I explain it like that, it makes sense. And plus, when that 530-pound man hits a guy, it's probably going to hurt a lot more than the 500-pound guy. <laughs> right. Well, 300-pound <laughs> guy. Correct. Got it. But it'd be and, stuck either way, but the extra 30 would probably hurt more. Right. Some people are super high on this tight end class. Based on how you evaluate tight ends, are people right to be excited? And then secondarily, if so, about whom should they be excited? Uh, wow. Yeah, I, I knew you were probably going to bring that up. Um, tight end is, is, it's, it's not a, okay. It's, it's a fairly easy position to do metrically. 
At the same time, this class did bring up a lot of players that I'm having trouble. I'm not trying to just be contrarian against O.J. Howard. I just think there are legit concerns uh, with him based on production and stuff like that. Uh, And basically with this one piece of data, which is that, you know, 100%, 93% of multiple off-road titles since 1963 had at least 80 percentile uh, level of, of uh, production, market share production, uh, in terms of college. And then 92% of multiple Pro Bowl tight ends since 1963 hit at 58% or higher in terms of market share production. O.G. Howard is 49.48 in his career. So he didn't hit the All-Pro level. He didn't hit the Pro Bowl level. He still has a chance. Because remember, I, I didn't say 100%. I said 93 92%. And the people that are part of that 93, 92% are guys like Jimmy Graham, uh, Antonio Gates, uh, you know, people like that. So if O.J. Howard tests ridiculously well, which so far is only negative that he doesn't have uh, 10.5-inch hands, he has 10-inch hands, which are still pretty big, but 10.5 was the threshold. Uh, for the most part, he'll hit every single physical metric. I think he probably will hit every sort of athletic metric, but of course, I don't know yet. But that's, you know, we're going to find that out. But I do think that there's suspect things production-wise with him. Um, the big producers, though, like the guys that people people are talking about them, but you know, they're kind of eh, on, I guess, or uh, whatever. Uh, Jake Butt is. Well, people are talking about him because he's injured, but he did produce well uh, for his level comp. He's the guy that hit the all-pro, uh, Pro Bowl level. I think he's more Zach Ertzish, to be honest, based on film, but he did sort of hit all the sort of production thresholds that you kind of want at the position. So he's, uh, he's more Ertz than, say, Gronk. Keith Miller. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, or Tony Gonzalez. Hopefully no one's Or, Gronk, yeah. you know, any of those guys. Like, he doesn't have the traits of those special tight ends, but at least he hit the production area of those special tight ends, is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, all pro guys. Uh, Gerald Everett did as well, but, of course, he's an H-backy guy. So, like, if Gerald Everett was back in the in the 70s, he probably would be a special guy, but, you know, we're in the 2000s, 2010. So, different era, but, yeah. Uh, Jody Smith also had a really high level, but he's a similar guy, H. Becky guy. But, but Jake Butt is the one guy who, for the most part, hit the sort of all-pro level of uh, of uh, production uh, in this class. Uh, if you're talking Pro Bowl level guys, there was a lot of guys that hit the Pro Bowl level of production. Bucky Hodges, who is not a tight end anymore, but <laughs> he hit the Pro Bowl potential level of production. Uh, David Njoku from Miami hit the sort of Pro Bowl level of uh, production. Evan Ingram hit the Pro Bowl level of uh, production and was almost at the All-Pro level, but no dice. Uh, but he, you know, he's close. Um, Jordan Leggett is in the Pro Bowl level. And Scott Orndorff, Orndorff as well. I don't like him that much, but he he's in that Pro Bowl level. So, I mean, there are there are relatively a lot of uh, fairly productive tight ends. There just isn't, there's only one guy who I think legitimately has the best shot to be an all pro guy. But I also don't think that based on film, but 
the guy who's the best shot's Jake Butt. Of course, he's injured. So we're left with a lot of guys who at least have Pro Bowl potential, but that's really about it. You know, it's Pro Bowl potential. It's, it's, you know, Pro Bowl potential is good. It's cool. But it also, uh, you know, again, you, there's a lot of – all these tight ends have to hit specific numbers. You know, they have to be fast. They have to be, you know, explosive. They have to – so there's a lot of things that can go wrong here, that's all I'm trying to say, with these guys. So it's not like the running back class. The running back class has three running backs who hit five-time all-pro level of production. Tight end, only one. So that kind of, I guess, shows the difference, I guess, in, in how people think about those classes or how the data thinks about those two classes. Got it. So that's a perfect segue, Jim. Uh, the running back class is one that excites some people. Some people think that one of the running backs might be, though I think they're thinking about the wrong running back, but might be a guy who might threaten the uh, the uh, CJ 2K record. Now, unfortunately, the running back, I think, who has the best shot of actually being a threat to that demon and get invited for whatever reason. And there's something for everybody. You know, if you like pass catchers, there's some of that. If you like power backs, that's some of that. If you like guys who can actually hold up and blitz pick up and block really well, those guys are there. If you like uh, scat backs, those guys are there. There's something of everybody. But based on the work you do and how you do the work you do, who are the ones that you think have the, the best and then maybe the you know, most remote chances of actually being what people say they might be? Well, just specifically talking about market share production, not really taking into age, because there's a lot of guys in this class who are helped by being young, um, and that's it. And I'll, and I'll get to those guys uh, a little bit later. But the guys who, who hit, like, had really, really productive seasons um, to, like, take notice, Aaron Jones from UTEP, one of those players, Christian McCaffrey, of course, from Stanford, uh, Brian Hill from Wyoming, Dalvin Cook from Florida State, Donald Pumphrey from San Diego State, Dante Foreman from Texas, Leonard Fournette from LSU, of course, and Jeremy McNichols. So those are guys who hit areas of uh, production that are indicative of uh, really, 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 really special backs. And it really just comes down to how well they test athletically um, and, you know, those sort of things with those types of players. Got it. Okay. So let's take a look. Uh when you do running backs, do you differentiate between, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, bell cow, load back, whatever, and the, the ancillary, whatever, or, or do you just, is it all sort of of a, you know, one piece when you do your work on running backs? Do you separate them, I guess, based on well usage and role, or do you just look at, I mean, well, go ahead. Well, I mean, the goal, the goal I have when, when I'm evaluating running backs is, is I'm trying to find running backs that fit the model of quality running back. You know, Adrian Peterson, uh, Marshawn Lynch, uh, you know, that type of a guy. Um, or even a LaShawn McCoy, even, you know. 
a guy that can become a, a lead back for a team and be really, really, really productive. Kind of what I look for. Um, there are definitely guys who, you know, can become backup guys who are not the best in terms of everything else like that. But I just focus, a lot of my stuff is focused towards finding the guys that are, you know, are the bell cows, are the guys that are going to, you know, get the most amount of carries and get the most amount of production because, uh, you know, I'm trying to find quality, not necessarily quantity at that position. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how I approach um, that sort of thing. And there definitely have been guys who had uh, very, very productive college seasons who ended up being backup guys, you know, for a while, um, you know, and, and had that sort of, you know, had those sort of uh, career trajectories, I guess. Sure. So, Sure. I mean, the obvious one that many people think of is Tiki Barber. And the Alvin Kamara thing is one of the things that people often bring up. Well, you know, maybe like with Tiki, he'll start out originally as third down back. But over but, time, he will eventually. But, say, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> Tiki Barber was a really, really productive running back. Alvin yes. Kamara is not. Like Alvin Kamara had a 36.30 market share production score, and based on the work that I do, um, that is a back that has a very the, the last running back to have that level of production and be successful was a guy in the 70s, you know. Which, which, which like, one? Well, uh, what's his name? Uh, Larry. Uh, no. Uh, oh, okay. He played, <laughs> at, played at Auburn, and his name was yeah, – I think I have to go because it was the 70s. Where are you? Oh, Larry Brown from Kansas State. So. Oh, my guy, Larry Brown. One of the world's yeah. smallest power backs. Yes. Larry okay. Brown, uh, William came Andrews. Another one of those guys. Another smallish power back. Apparently smallish power backs. Larry Brown was 5'9 and 203, and as you mentioned, from Kansas State, and he came out of the one draft that uh, Vince Lombardi ran for Washington. And unfortunately, of course, he became ill and died within less than a year after that draft. But, uh, yes, I remember Larry, Larry Brown was my first favorite football player. He wore number 43. Well, that is how long ago it was the successful <laughs> running back with Alvin Kamara's production existed. Um, long time ago. Very, very long time ago. Even <laughs> Terrell Davis was more productive in college than Alvin Kamara. So I worry about stuff like that when, you know, the majority of the special play. well, first of all, the majority of multiple all-pro, consistently all-pro guys, are in the 90 percentile of the production. Then the Pro Bowl guys, like five-time Pro Bowl guys, you know, like the really, really, you know, those guys who are not really all pro guys, the Frank Gores, you know, those types of guys are basically 57 percentile, you know, or well, actually, you know, 69.45 or higher. And then the three-time guys are about 51.91 or higher. So we... So, like, the chances of him being, like, a very high-quality running back in this era is really, really, really low, you know. 
Could he be a committee back? Sure. But he has the, the type of production in this era that makes you wonder, should you re- like this is the type of back that you draft UDFA. This is the type of back you draft late round because uh, the chances of him being successful, just being risk averse, you know, being risk averse. Um, the chances of that guy being really successful uh, are really, really low, you know. Um, not even to get into the fact that he had issues fighting off, you know, Jalen Hurts and, you know, like, you know, well, not Jalen Hurts, but well, it's funny. They're kind of similar, but, you know, he had issues fighting off the Tennessee running backs, who <laughs> I'll just say are not the most talented running backs ever. And he also had issues but, fighting off the Alabama, right? So, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying. You said Larry Brown and was the last player to truly resemble him in terms of production. If you are talking a a three-time Pro Bowl running back. Okay. It doesn't happen that often. Um, Just put perspective (laughs) on it. So Larry Brown. The last guy, Larry Brown, William Andrews from Auburn. Right, William Andrews is also like a really good running back, and of course, like I said, an undersized power back. Rounded, they rounded up the six feet. He was five eleven and change, and right about two hundred to two ten um, throughout his entire career. But ran very hard. Right, sure, sure. They they ran hard, great. But <laughs> I'm just saying that. A lot of the and, and the other a more recent example of this is uh, Priest Holmes. You know, it's another okay. right. sort of re- more recent example of a guy with that level with with Alvin Kamara's level of production. Um, but but Priest Holmes was was not a second round pick. No, he was being considered a first so, round pick. So just to confirm, because you're risk. saying three three times in forty. Five years, I think is what you're saying, then, or 40? Well, let me see, 1969, so... He was um, he was really the maybe the original or something one of the original great fantasy football running backs. He was right, one of the yeah. original great fantasy football running backs. So yeah, yeah, he had a very good run there for a while. But again, he was a late round guy, and not even that, he was a UDFA guy. So, so my question is, my basic thing is this: even though Priest Holmes became the original fantasy football back. Even though Terrell Davis became a Hall of Famer, right? I mean, he became a Hall of Famer. Even though Larry Brown had a fairly successful career in the NFL in terms of, you know, going to a lot of Pro Bowls and stuff like that. Based on the data, the risk-averse of things, basically, yes, Terrell Davis, because of the success they had, if he did a redraft, you would have taken them higher based on the success that they had. But at the same time, you should take into account the risks associated that it's four players in the last 48 years. 
you know, to have really, really high quality outcomes. Because if you're taking a running back in the first round, or you're taking a running back in the second round, you're expecting quality, you know, yes, a higher level of production, a higher level of consciousness, whatever you want to call it, you're expecting quality. And nothing says quality like a 36.30 production <laughs> score at Tennessee. Now, where did where did Terrell Davis fall in terms of, of market share production? It was forty eight point nine one. Oh, so, so significantly above. above Kamara. Okay, we got it. He was better, you know. So Aaron Foster was better. Aaron Foster was in the sixty. He's pretty much uh, on the on the level of a you know potential three time or more Pro Bowl uh, level running back. But all, all, again, all I'm trying to say is is that Alvin Kamara has lots of things in common with a guy that, you know, was a UDFA guy, which means that he should be a UDFA guy. And this is based on tape. I've seen his film. I don't like his film that much. <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. He's had his moments. He's had those those uh, runs, if you will, um, that were cool. But more than not, you know, he doesn't really break tackles consistently has inconsistent vision. He's not really the best pass protector. It, I'm just, I don't get it. So, you know, again, I'll probably do another one of these graphics that people, you know, whatever. But I'm just saying that it's just not, that the chances of Alvin Kamar becoming a really, really special running back um, are very, very low. You know, and even right. starters <laughs> are very low. Yeah, right. And as you pointed out, though he does have some splashy plays, if you watch, this is where gift scouts can get into trouble, but if you watch whole games, entire games, several, like six or seven of them, you will find some, as you said, points of concern, like him at times giving up carry, lots of carry, if you should put it out to some of their younger running backs, at at times seeming like he's not always sure of what his assignment is in certain situations. I don't know if that's just maybe just general confusion on the, the offense as a whole. There are things there. There are, I, mean, they, I mean, I can explain why I don't like Alvin Kamara in film, but I also find it really convenient that his production is at a level that should make any reasonable person who looks at the information to go, hold on a minute. He had a 36.3 out of 100 production score, and they <laughs> saying he's a second round back? Come on, man. You know, like, I'm just right. saying, any reasonable person, any person who doesn't even do football, you know, would read that an English teacher, you know, in the 10th grade could look at the information that I present to him, and he would say, I don't. I think that's a bad idea. You know, I don't think that's. I don't think that's going to work out. So, <laughs> um, right. We'll see what happens. Of course. Sure, this may just be. Who knows? He could end up being. You know, this great whatever running back about says he is. I'm saying that based on the film I've seen and based on the data that I have, I don't think it's going to happen. So. Um, in this era. And again, a lot of the backs I mentioned to you um, who had, you know, like, you know, relatively successful careers were way, 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 way back there, uh, you know, a long time ago. 
60s, 70s, you know, 80s. And yeah, the Terrell Davis and the Priest Holmes, but those are like the most recent examples, you know. So, um, and, 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 and once again, uh, Terrell Davis was significantly more productive. As and he was more productive. Yeah. Highlighted. As we just highlighted. So, I don't know. I don't know. See, these are the things <laughs> that go through my mind, you know, when I'm on Twitter. So, um, so, so getting getting to, of course, the the next two positions. Uh, a lot of people were originally down on this wide receiver class, it seems, and then slowly but surely, it's now become a really good class. Um, you know, the last two months, you know, after people sort of whining about this class going into the season, the last two months people have embraced it as a good, seeming almost universally, have embraced it as a good class. So based on what you do, uh, how does the wide receiver class as a whole appear to someone looking through a metrical lens and then, once again, turning to the combine specifically, is there a reason for excitement? And if so, about whom should we be excited? Hmm. I mean, I mean the, the wide receiver class is concerning to me uh, because a lot of the players that are – they're right at the level. And all that I mean by that is when it comes to wide receiver, it's the same thing as running back in that there is a certain level of production when it comes to quality um, outcomes, right. um, at least the majority of those quality outcomes, uh, if you will. So basically, again, just to run down some of the things like, you know, 100% of multiple all-pro, uh, five-time all-pro wide receivers, and this is back to 1969 as well, for guys that were 85, uh, you know, percentile or higher uh, in terms of uh, their market share production. Uh, guys that were three-time All-Pro guys, you know, which is also really difficult to do. You know, Sterling Sharp, guys like that. Um, right. Those are guys that were 80 percentile or higher. Three-time Pro Bowlers, you know, were 68 percentile or higher. And then long-term starters with 58% are higher. There are a couple of guys, handful of guys, you know, the, uh, the, what's that one guy from Florida? You know, uh, the Julian Edelman, the Randall Ellis, yes. the, you know, there's, Form, there's former guys quarterbacks like that. is what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. There are guys that are like that, that exist. Um, there are, a few other, and they're not really coming to my mind right now, but, I mean, there there are other guys who were, you know, they tell me, eh, productive-wise, and, you know, they had uh, okay careers uh, when it came down to it uh, in, in terms of, you know, the wide receiver position. As most positions, you're going to have outliers. Um, my only issue with this class is we have a lot of players who hit that three-time Pro Bowl area, you know, that 70 area who I like, I really like Curtis Samuel. I like John Ross. I, you know, I think Carlos Henderson is cool. You know, I, I like a lot of these types of wide receivers. Um, but the guys that are hitting that all pro level, that five time all pro level of production in this class, uh, the guys like Juju Smith, uh, the players, uh, like Jalen Robinette, you know, from the air force, uh, who else? Chris Godwin, 
you know, for example, um, Noel Thomas from Connecticut. Uh, who's this other guy? Yeah. So they, all those guys are – they hit that five-time All-Pro area, but none of those guys, I, I based on the film that I've seen, I don't feel like they're going to be five-time All-Pro players, though. So Okay. <laughs> So, so that's the problem I have with, with the with the wide receiver class. It, so much as I think there is a lot of talent in this class. I think there's a lot of guys that have very good shots to, to be successful players. Um, but to be like that elite, elite, special guy, which, again, it doesn't happen every year. I get it. But I'm just saying that's kind of what this class lacks and that there are players who hit that production level. But, again, if I said, hey, Bill, Chris Godwin – is going to be a five-time All-Pro player, you would say, what? are you crazy? Not, Im- not impossible, but yes, I would I would say that I, I haven't seen that. I've seen a guy that's more likely to be, you know, sort of Alan Hearns-ish as opposed right. to... Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So, I don't see Dez. I don't see... I don't even see yeah, Jimmy Cooper. Yeah, right. Or Beckham Jr. Cooper. No, no, no. Um, there's not, there's not that guy. So that's what this, that's where the issue is. It's very, you know, it reminds me somewhat of the class that Deshaun Jackson came out in, only in the sense that, like Deshaun Jackson, uh, he didn't quite hit the the five time All Pro area, but he did hit the three time All Pro area. He did have all the components for a special wide receiver. He didn't have every single one, you know, um, in terms of stuff. And he ended up being a very, very good player, a very productive player. You know, I had yep. some really, really good seasons. Uh, and I think that's kind of like this class, is that there are guys in this class that I like a lot, uh, you know. That, and you know, D.D. Westbrook, I'm a big fan of him. You're a big fan, too. Uh, you know, Austin Carr. Like, there are a lot of guys in this class. I think they'll be very productive, very good players. I just don't think that we're going to have, like, that star, star guy come out of this class. And even a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, who, as a age guy, you go, like, nuts over that guy. But me, I, I, if he has a career like Kenny Britt, you know, or, or maybe not even as good as Kenny Britt, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Um, just because he, he's a really young guy, he's really raw. And, I'll tell you who I'm. I'll tell yeah. you I see more and more the more I watch him. There's a guy close like Hakeem Nix a little bit almost. I mean, I think he might have one or two really good years. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, but again, but that, but that is in general. That's my my only real concern with this class is that, or, or even Corey Davis. Which again, when Corey Davis says. I'm not going to perform at the combine, which we don't know yet, but the reports that are coming out are that I'm not going to, you know, do stuff at the combine. As a metric guy, I go, oh, hold on a minute here. Mr. Mac guy, you have to. You're a Mac guy. (laughs) You have to show up and do your thing, you know. And just so you know, NFL scouts are saying, you know, maybe not to the press, but are saying that exact same thing. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and again, I like Corey Davis. But there's a lot of things I need to confirm with Corey Davis before I actually invest stuff in, you know. So, um, but again, that that's just my main, you know. Again, my main point about the hard glasses, I, I think there's a lot of guys who hit an area to where the again the range of possibilities is 
probabilities. There's a lot of guys who hit that sort of area. Guys who don't quite hit that area, the big one, the guy that you know that I don't like that much, uh, is Mike Williams. Um, yeah. he he's going to have one of the most pivotal. Yeah, he's going to have one of the most pivotal combines. His combine is going to be enormously important. Because yeah. if he tests like Dez, which I think he won't, but if he tests like Dez, the people who have been, well, who have been touting him, him are going to be yeah, like, we're, we're ha! That's what, ha! Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But he doesn't have the production of Dez. He doesn't he have the production the of Austin Jeffrey. He doesn't have the production. <laughs> All the players he gets compared to, A.G. Green, oh, all those guys, and this is the big thing to me. Mike Williams is a overestimation of the box out wide receiver thing. Um, you know, like oh, Austin Jeffrey does it. See, that's the trait to the position. Well, no, there's other traits, but right. I'm basically it's like this. He's at a level of production, which I was surprised at. Uh, but he's at a level of production where there hasn't been a three-time Pro Bowler at that at his level of production uh, since Haywood Jeffries. You know, as I already told you about. Um, the I'm other a big guy, fan of him coming out of North Carolina State. Yeah, I'm very sure, familiar. Sure, sure, but that's a long time ago, Bill. I mean, you know, I'm just, <laughs> it's yeah, it, but it, but he doesn't even hit that threshold. That's the other thing too. Doesn't even hit. Like, I was always comfortable with the Dwayne Bowie-ish comparison. Um, and then I went back and watched him with a bow on tape. But at the same <laughs> time, I, I at the same time, I was just feeling that because I'm like, okay, he, you know, he's a big wide receiver and he's, you know, he's, he's good, but he's not great. You know, like, I was just kind of going that. But then when you actually go back and watch, you know, Michael and Moore, <laughs> you just get this sinking feeling that there's a lot of components here, but not the right amount and the, the, you know, there's not enough of things to really like, this is a guy who's going to be a possession wide receiver, but not a guy who's going to be a truly dynamic, uh, you know, big wide receiver or whatever you want to call that guy. So, and who knows if he has a career like Kelvin Benjamin, and that's a big issue with these types of wide receivers is all they have to do is flash you that box out ability at the NFL level. People go, Hey, look, Hey, see, See, success. But I'm looking at consistent success. I'm looking for dominant, consistently dominant wide receivers, and I just don't think he's ever going to be that. Um, so, and I may be on an island there, but well, so, I just, so based based on what you do, who are the guys that we should expect the most of at the next level? Well, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of there. There is a lot of. Uh, Okay. I mean, Amba, it's a towel. Okay, okay let's spend a little time on him because there, yeah. he does have some big fans. He also has some big critics. Uh, there are some people who yeah. think he might turn out to be the best receiver or one of the best receivers in this class. Not a lot of people, but some people, including one or two guys I, I kind of I do, do respect, have said they think he'll end up being one of the best, if not the best, only one of the best receivers in this class. So what are the things that give you reason to believe you might actually have a chance to be a special player? Well, he's old, which, I mean, it's, okay. it's not really the 
place to start. But, I mean, you just have to start with some of the negatives. He is old. He did play a okay schedule. But he did have a fairly, again, a fairly productive, you know, season. Um, and film-wise, you do see things. I think he's going to test well. I think he's going to, uh, you know, my biggest criticism of him on tape really was more to do with um, attacking zone coverage more than man coverage. Like, when it comes to man coverage, he, he usually has a very good ability to get off man coverage well, you know, get off press well, um, and beat people with his feet in those sort of situations. When it comes to finding the open spots in zone and picking the right, you know, going in the right place so he's not running his route into cornerback leverage or safety leverage, he's not always there, you know, very kind of rawish in terms of those sort of things. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of components there to where he could be successful early on because of his ability to beat man coverage uh, well with just his innate athletic ability. Um, And even if he isn't the best, overall zone attacker I still think that there's I still think that can be worked on I guess you know so I just say that he's a guy that I think will be successful just because of the combination of some of those things I guess in terms of uh, you know his athletic ability with some of the things he already can do in terms of beating man coverage got it Okay, any other receivers that show the most opportunity based on the work you do to be special? Well, you know, again, I I just really like Curtis Samuel. I don't know why, but <laughs> I just think he has great feet. I think he, he he's this guy that he gets open on deep routes. JT Dirt doesn't throw him the ball. But right. he knows he has this. He just has this ability to where I've seen him run a good chunk of the route tree and do it really, really well. Um, which is why people were going running back, running back. I'm like, why? Considering that most of the running back things he does is things that you could have Randy Moss do. You know, in terms of like end arounds and stuff like that. Like it's it's not like completely conducive to running back, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of the running back things that they were asking him to do. So I just really like just his feet uh, and just his ability to run those intermediate routes and even the deep routes really well. It's just a matter of getting a quarterback uh, to, you know, to get him there. I do understand his limitations. You know, I mean, he's not the most perfect route runner ever. Um, but I do think there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of components there to where if he goes to the right team, like say if he went to the New England Patriots, right, or the, you know, Saints or the Raiders, you know, like a team like that, I think there's a lot of possibilities there for him. You know, and, and like most of the, like most of those teams, um, the Kansas City Chiefs, the, you know, the, West Coasty teams, I think, would really like a guy like Curtis Samuel. Green Bay Packers. Like, imagine if Aaron Rodgers had Curtis Samuel. You know, there's a lot of good things that could happen with that combination. Gotcha. Uh, so, the wide receiver class has some good players. No, you know, greats of all time. No future Hall of Famers, but good players. Guys will start for many years. Okay. Pretty much. Last 
last, but certainly not least, the dreaded quarterback uh, class. One, once again, as a whole, how do you see the quarterback class matching up in terms of, you know, how it compares historically? Two, based on what you do, how do you weight, you know, the things that you see quarterbacks do at the combine? And then, of course, three, who are the guys that have shown the best in terms of what you do, uh, the best opportunity to be great or at least very good? Well, as I, as I told Pete himself, you're not going to like me, but Deshaun Watson pretty much is the metric quarterback in the class. Um, he hits all the areas from high school level. Uh, he, in terms of production at high school level, he hits all the areas. In terms of the NFL level, he had a 94 score, uh, a QB stat score, um, which uh, 100% of, uh, well, not 100%, but pretty much all the multiple all pro quarterbacks, with the exception of Brett Favre, um, hit the 90 percentile area of that stat. Um, so Watson hits everything, you know, like in terms of his production, like, you know, like there's nobody really comes close to him uh, in terms of uh, just kind of hitting every, like being the metric quarterback, he's that guy. If the Browns take him, who knows um, if, if they do that or not. I really don't know what the Browns are doing. And a lot of the stuff I read that they are doing, I go, oh, no, oh, no. And then I read something else, I go, oh, yeah. Like, so I, I worry that the Browns are in a situation where they do have an analytics department, but they're still trying to figure stuff out. And in the NFL, you can't, you know, you can't have the season that the Browns had and get away with it just because of the analytics. You can't blame the analytics at the NFL level. You get fired. So, um that's my worry. But Deshaun Watson is the guy that kind of hits every sort of box and stuff like that. The other guy who did really, really well was Mahomes, but didn't do so well at the high school level. Now, again, like I, like I already you know, told you, Bill, the high school level stuff, it's still a 6,000-player sample. It's something I really shouldn't be discounting, but at the same time, it, it is a sample that is smaller than the other sample. But I, I do think it is – somewhat of a concern that he is really, really productive. Um, he's Pro Bowl level productive at the uh, college level, but his high school level stuff is, is suspect compared to other NFL starters with his high school production. So that is something I kind of want to look more into, but that's just kind of his area where he, uh, he kind of trips up a bit. Mitch Trubisky also did well in terms of high school and, uh, and college. But, again, he only had one year of starts, which I, I don't really want to go through all the names again with all the quarterbacks who only had one year of starts. But it's not a very good list. Um, and most no. of the guys that even were successful um, were guys that, that were, like, completely different types of quarterbacks, you know, Cam Newton and, you know, stuff like that. So um, so that's, that's the main thing I worry about with Mitch Trubisky is just that he's only had one year of starts. And he does hit every other sort of thing, but – I just do think it's a bit risky. It's risky to get the biscuit, you know, in terms of him. Uh, who else is kind of like that? Um, surprisingly, well, not really surprisingly, but Brad Kaya is okay from not this year, but last year. Get a better – most of the quarterbacks in the class actually had better 2015 seasons than 2016, just so you know. 
Um, but he was one that had a Pro Bowl-level season uh, in uh, 2015, came back and had a yeah year. Um, but he also has some high school stuff that's there. It's kind of positive. I guess the last guy I'll uh, – oh, oh, yeah. Well, I have to throw Greg Ward in. Greg Ward also um, did well in terms of uh, production and uh, high school production as well. But he's Greg Ward. But he'll never get a shot play quarterback in the NFL. But I um, just want to throw that out there. And yeah. also Sifu. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the last guy, Sifu, too. Sifu was also a guy that had – good high school level stuff and good uh, college level stuff. But the only issue with Sifu was that his, it was his last year that he had a really big, like most of his career was kind of, and then he had one really good year, which was this year, um, which is kind of like his high school career, actually. His high school career was like, yeah, and then he had a really good senior year, um, which I'm not trying to put too much into that, but I'm, you know, that was kind of the pattern that he had, which I thought was kind of suspect, but, uh, but, yeah, the, the main guy is Deshaun Watson. Um, he's a guy who hits every sort of thing for an all-pro guy, but the NFL doesn't like him. So, for whatever reason. At least that's what they say. So, but yeah, he's that's kind of where he's at. And those are the top ones. Well, yeah, for the most part. Um I mean, that's pretty much all of them because I went through every single one. Um, the ones who, who were the best in terms of the quarterbacks that uh, were at the Shrine and the Senior Bowl and, the, you know, the Combine this year, the, the top ones were Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Mitch Trubisky, and uh, Brad Kaya. Uh, those were kind of the top, top, top ones. And so something as, I won't say minor, but something as singular as that can can change something for a, for a player, can alter how they are perceived? For, for which exactly? Well, you were mentioning, so the quarterbacks you said have the just best chance. You have Trubisky, but one year. You mentioned, well, obviously, I guess Deshaun Watson was one of the players you mentioned. The only player who doesn't have any awards uh, is Deshaun Watson. Um, every other player has uh, pleas and other things. No, the su- suspect thing from a data perspective. Um, you know. They, they do, but yeah. I mean, but yeah, Watson is like, again, he's the only guy who's really clean from a data perspective. Like, there's not a lot of negatives to Deshaun Watson. Uh, I can't find them yet. I mean, we'll find it at the Combine, of course, but, um, but I can't find any real negatives to really say about him. He pretty much hits everything for a consistently uh, productive NFL quarterback.
Oh, hello? Right. Guys. Okay, so ideally you would want a quarterback who could move around enough to buy a little time, occasionally pick up third and three. You mentioned that height, because when we first started talking back in the day, Jim, you pointed out that, I can't remember what percentage you said, but of NFL snaps were taken by quarterbacks who were, you know, between this range and this range, you pointed out that not every single, but the majority of the great quarterbacks were 6-3 and up or whatever the number was. And, of course, in this case, I think three of them are following up on the behalf. But uh, once again, tell me about what you expect in terms of the, the linemen. There'll be somebody, you know, one or two every year, like there are, who break a record or come close to a record in something. And, of course, we'll have to figure out, I guess, who that'll be. Oh, with uh, which position? Still sticking with quarterbacks. Uh, this one's oh. sort of go over... <laughs> You know, because they always get expressed. So you mentioned Trubisky, but one year of production. I was thinking if there are any others, you know, maybe north of you or around you in either direction, I suppose, west, east, west, whichever. I was going to ask who are some of the places maybe or that you may think. I mean, just sort of thinking about, because we have Mitch Trubisky, who some people are all in, right? I mean, I've been talking about Trubisky for a while, and I've was shocked they decided to declare, but, you know, quarterback thirst is real. But what are the thresholds? You know, you always talk about there's marks or thresholds or, you know, the quarterbacks who reach these numbers are most likely going to be guys that will be three times in Pro Bowls or three, whatever it is, the thresholds. What is it a quarterback should do metrically to qualify to be one of the, you know, somebody who's a first rounder and essentially what are those numbers? Right. Uh, well, when it comes to that position, you want a guy who is 23 years old or less. Kind of the first place with with uh, age. Um, all the way back to 1983, uh, there hasn't been a ton of guys who were 20 who entered at 24 and had uh, you know had quality seasons to say the least. All pro guys, Pro Bowl guys, etc. Um, production wise, you're looking if you're talking about all pro guys. The Joe Montana's, the Roger Salvecs, the you know all those guys, uh, the Tom Brady's, they were 91.4 or higher in terms of their production score at the college level. Uh, the Pro Bowl guys were 75.96. The long-term starters were 26.64 or higher. And when it came to high school production, uh, long-term starters from 2004 to now. Uh, were guys who had at least a 69 score with high school production. Um, so the most part, if you're talking about a quality quarterback, you're looking for a guy who is above average in uh, each sort of uh, data stuff. And it's mainly touchdown interception ratio and completion percentage. Um, yards per attempt, air yard stuff is not that reliable um, for the most part. Yeah, it, it can tell you how dynamic the offense is, like how high-flying it is and, you know, stuff like that. But things like your ability to not turn the football over and to keep the chains moving and not have dead plays um, are things that really are the, the, the tenets of quarterback production um, data, you know, 
which I think makes sense. You know, you want quarterbacks that don't turn the football over. You want quarterbacks to keep the chains moving. And the guys who do that the best, statistically speaking, are the guys who are more likely to become the special quarterbacks at the position. So, if I am a team picking towards the bottom of, say, the third, who's likely to be there and who would you pick in that exact self-same situation? So, based on what you do and how you do it, tell me about the the storylines that most excite Geometrics, uh, Jim Coburn, and who do you believe are the players, or fitting with that first question, who are the players that, to your, your mind, make the most sense? So, 
<laughs> if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of the players that people are putting in you know, fairly early in the second half of the, the the final cut of the scene, that particular sequence, at least that part of it, is not in the movie. So, any players we haven't touched on that are interest to you, either just because they're guys who, you know, you know this while staying on the player, who are any names that weren't discussed that you think might be having a much better combine than most people believe? So, any guys that we might not touch on that you are probably interesting or intriguing. Still there, Jim? Okay. <laughs> Did we lose Jim? Guess it would appear we have. For me, in the first tier, you know, you have you know guys like Mike, like Michael Williams, like uh, Darby, and a few others, and I see a whole lot of guys in that next tier below that, and then a decent number in the tier below that, but not much. You know, by that point, you've worked way further down. Uh, not too many guys who were, you know. NFL guys at that point, or even the best day of his life, he's only seen you know a couple of them in any position. And let's see. Yeah, I'll be very interested to see obviously you also how they throw and all those questions people like to ask about interactions, you know, do they seem to be able are the alpha males, first of all. People love to see you know, guys react, or be, you know, be, show leadership and show, you know, that they're electric personalities and when they walk in the room, everyone notices and, you know, that the man or the man next to the man, I mean, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so those are things that people look for, obviously. But, yeah, I definitely want to see also, you know, obviously just how the ball comes off, you know, when a guy's throwing certain routes. And some of these guys playing offenses where certain routes they throw either rarely or almost not at all. Get to see how they look. And, of course, I do look at athletic testing. I mean, not that I love it, you know. I mean, 
uh, because it, it is, as you would point out, if you were speaking, you know, it's not very non-predictive. There's not a lot of predictive value. You know, and of course, people will always bring up forever. Uh, we'll bring up what uh, Tom Brady did or, or to the point did not do, athletically speaking, you know, and his you know, horrible combine, all that stuff. And, you know, how he's one of a very small number of quarterbacks to have that level of lower body strength or lower body weakness, I guess you should say, to have a long-term successful career. He obviously got better. He got stronger. He got everything. Um, he's one of the most improved players in the history of ever uh, at any position, let alone quarterback. But I do look at how, especially things like Churchill, free cone, I think other things amongst the testing part of it that I, I, to which I pay the most attention amongst quarterbacks because I do look for their ability to extend plays, you know, not to run necessarily, but to avoid a uh, slip away from a defender. And of course, if you do have truly, truly, truly slow feet, I I do worry about your ability to navigate the pocket. And, you know, if you have to quickly reset and throw a ball deep down the field accurately, having just made someone miss, things like that. So I will have particular interest in the testing of guys like Kaya, who I think might test better than people believe. I think Mahomes might have a really, really good day at the office in terms of just pure athletic testing. Uh, Trubisky is a guy whose testing I think will be intriguing. Uh, for me, it's Deshaun Watson. Like so many other people, can he win the way in, you know, in terms of height and weight? You know, is he 6'1 or is he 6'2? Is he 206 pounds or is he 213 pounds? I mean, these are not things that maybe seem to matter to a whole lot of people, but if you're an NFL team about to invest, you know, a top of the first round or top half of the first round pick in a quarterback, you want to have a pretty good idea of exactly what you're going to unwrap, you know, when you get that gift. And the last thing I look for is to just see, you know, a certain amount of demeanor. I mean, obviously, you know, these guys bend Thanks to the, you know, workout facilities where guys go and Manning Passing Academies and a variety of other things, even back to Elite 11 while they were in high school, these guys are more likely to know each other than, you know, in 1983, you know, when those guys probably had heard of each other. But, you know, Marino had probably maybe run into Blackledge just because they're both Pennsylvania guys, maybe at an all-star game in high school or something. And... You know, Elway could probably have heard of Kim O'Brien, maybe, but unlikely they'd cross paths unless, once again, maybe at some sort of camp or all-star game, but I doubt it. Those camps weren't a big deal really in those days. Uh, you know, Jim Kelly probably, unless he played against one of those guys, would have not really had much knowledge of them. I mean, so that's where it changed so much, is that nowadays the top quarterbacks almost have to have met each other at some point, somewhere, some way, somehow. But still, I'm interested in seeing, you know, how they, you know, meet and greet, uh, at least the stuff we get to see combine-wise. Those things that I look for in the quarterbacks, and we don't get to see, I mean, thanks to, you know, the Gruden thing, we get to see to some extent how they 
process information, but they, they nowadays they study for that. You know, a lot of these guys will will watch how other guys did on, you know, the Gruden uh, camp situation and, you know, they'll bone up and they'll make sure they know how to draw up certain things. But, you know, once again, you'll you'll do anyway when uh, when the time comes at the combine itself. Uh, anything else? Anything else worth mentioning? Well, that's probably about it. But I just want to make sure that we always, you know, spend time on who shows up and who does certain things, who doesn't do certain things, things like that. As has been mentioned, uh, this is, in many ways, as people like to say, a extended job interview. And we don't get to see, you know, really the most important part, one of the most important parts is that people are sitting down and answering questions, interview-type questions. We get some of leakage about how guys handle that situation, but that's obviously for quarterbacks, particularly maybe one of the most important things, along with football knowledge, the kind of person you are, how you deal with challenges, and how you deal with authority, and how you become an authority, because... Eventually, if you're going to be a starting quarterback in the NFL, you are an authority figure. People want to see how you handle being a leader. So that's something that, that uh, like I said, along with the medicals, along with everything else, uh, height, weight. And like I said, for quarterbacks, athletic testing is probably, you know, way down. You know, where with, say, a cornerback or a wide receiver, it may be one of the top things, you know, in terms of how you evaluate. Obviously, for quarterbacks, it's you know, maybe least, important or one of the least important things, but still there are things to be gleaned and learned from seeing that as well. So, um, once again, always a pleasure. Jim, I know apparently you have to run. Always good to have Jim. Because he's Jim, you know? I mean, no offense to anybody else who's out there doing football data stuff. I Until someone else can step up and, you know, put together the kind of work I've seen Jim do, I'm going to have to Basically, calling the champ. He's Conor McGregor. He's he's Mayweather right now, and the other guys, like I said, are contenders. But still, uh, once again, a privilege and uh, an honor and a treat. We'll do this again in one week, and of course, by that point, by this time next week, we actually will know things. The combine will taught us things. We'll be close to the end of it by that point. In fact, so once again, always a pleasure, always a privilege. I thank you all for your time your talents, your attention. We'll do this again in one week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.